Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. The state of American political discourse is pretty bad right now. Uh, every day, I think our country strays further and further into uh, like a higher likelihood of civil conflict, right? Um, currently, we see a large amount of radicalization from both sides of the aisle right now, and moderates are uh, actively being phased out and being seen as crazy people. And it kind of leads to a lot of uh, problems for the people that uh, have the national interest at heart in that of a more centered position. There's, you can go in a lot of different routes, whether you, you want to find a holistic identity to kind of frame your values from like the church, or you want to frame uh, your values from being politically involved in your community to kind of see what is going on and how I can help. Or like I said, you have at the very least conversations with different types of people to really learn, okay, what are you about? You don't have to kind of interview them, but conversing about topics that you may even not feel comfortable comfortable about, I believe is extremely, extremely valuable. Are you enjoying today's podcast episode? I really hope you do. And I really hope you enjoy the fact that I have an amazing guest talking with me and having this great discussion. If you, as an individual, personally have your own podcast and maybe you want to have great guests on your podcast as well, well, I got a deal for you. In my description, there is a link to something called Podmatch. Make sure to join that link through my affiliate link so you can sign up to get matched up with other podcast hosts and podcast guests so you make sure you are never missing an episode without a productive guest to have an amazing conversation with. Podmatch is similar to any other kind of matching site for the most part. And it's super easy you, just $6 a month and you can have a guest for each and every podcast episode that is tailored to your specific topic. So again, join the link in my description and join Podmatch now. Do you want a great website like this? This is my podcast website where I direct the audience to come to watch the content, listen to the content, read the blogs and much, much more. If you want to have your own customizable podcast website, then join my affiliate link in my description to sign up for something called PodPage and they can help you customize an easy podcast website for your personal podcast. Sign up to get a discount now. Again, use the link in my description to join PodPage now. Welcome back to the episode. Uh, we are back at it again. I did say that we plan to do Mondays and Thursdays. In due time, it will eventually happen once we get everything squared away. But another thing I said is that I'm going to bring in co-hosts. And you already met Jonathan, of course. We had a great episode last week or this week, depending on when you're listening to it. And I have another co-host who has also an interesting perspective from whatever aisle that he wants to explain himself from, and that is Paul. So, uh, Paul, introduce yourself, my guy. Uh, hi, my name is Paul. I'm a uh, private investigator that works in the state of Florida. Uh, I guess, like, what you want me to give me, like, the life story? Uh, give whatever you want to share, Mark. Uh, yeah, I, um... I'm a member of the Democratic Party and a coordinator for it on my spare time, and I also work with at-risk youth. Uh, I'm a Lutheran in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and uh, I guess you could call me a social democrat. 
All right, excellent, excellent. So as you can see, we have Paul, who uh, falls more on the left in terms of being a Democrat. We have Jonathan, who falls more on the right, being a conservative, and myself kind of waning wherever I feel like, depending on the day. So we're going to have a lot of great conversations today, of course, um, and future conversations as well in uh, different topics that we're discussing. Um, what you need to know today in terms of current events is that I have been so busy, I haven't even been checking what's going on currently. You guys have any uh, current events you guys want to share? The sub thing? I don't have much. Oh, I saw the sub thing with the controller. I saw yeah. it right oh, Yeah. Yeah, they got like 34 hours left of air, right? Oh, that's so crazy controlling it with the controller. That's so crazy. Yeah, with the PS2 controller, I heard. Yeah, it, it was <laughs> pretty retro. The updated version, guys. Yeah, come, come on, <laughs> bump it up. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, what what are we doing right now? That is that's something else. That's something else. I was. Uh, go ahead. I was making a joke. Like they're going down to tour the Titanic. It's like those are the same people that would get caught on Jurassic Park if that ever actually opened. One hundred percent. At man. some point, yeah. at some point, they deserve what they. Have. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Uh, um. Other than that, you know, uh, like I said, I haven't been keeping up with uh, much of what's going on. I do know uh, that if you guys want to watch a masterpiece, go watch the new Spider-Man movie. So, go uh, go check out that. Of course, really good in terms of animation, plot, okay, but animation. Amazing, top tier, incredible. Um, DC, I heard Flash is okay. Um, we talked about it a little bit. Will DC completely kind of ruin themselves and flop, or will James Gunn save the franchise? No, yeah, nah. Nah. yeah not, not happening. Yeah. He's gonna go for the wrong. He's gonna go for the wrong tone of DC. One hundred percent. Anything Matthew Reeves should take over and just make all the all the DC movies. Oh man, he's missing already with the Henry Cavill stuff. That's that's already a yeah, bad start. Oh, it's terrible a nightmare. Yeah, wake me up. Come on, Jesus, man. I feel so bad. This guy cares so much about his roles, and he just like they keep on screwing him over. I don't, yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, that's so. I tough. was excited what they were going to do with Martian Manhunter. I was really looking forward to that, but it's all gone now. All gone. Yeah. That's so tough. I guess we're going to have to keep up with Marvel. Marvel's kind of, at least, they kind of said to themselves, hey, we're doing too much and this stuff is kind of trash, so let's take a step back. So I'll give credit to Marvel for that. Hopefully they kind of figure everything else with the, uh, what's his name, Jonathan Ramos? Apparently he has allegations on him. That's kind of tough. Really? What happened? Apparently a girl alleged certain things about him. Oh, the actor for Kang. I heard about that. And... It'll be so tough if he got proved guilty and the main villain of your second part of your like phase or fifth part, whatever, is gone and you have to recast. That would be I mean, crazy. hey, Ezra Miller did some sketchy stuff, I guess. Still... <laughs> Very, oh, true. Yeah. So, Very true. I don't know. I guess if, if you're holding up a franchise, maybe they let you go. Yeah, for real. A lot like yeah. some politicians as well, you know? Exactly. But with that said, you know, Marvel's owned by Disney, so we'll we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But all right, let's go into the conversation uh, topic at hand. Today, I want to talk about the current state of kind of political discourse, um, whether it's political topic, social or cultural. Um, at the end of the day, I think it's very important 
or I think this is a good starting episode to really establish all of our mindsets in regards to this discourse, especially in America. We can talk global as well uh, in a second. But, you know, we all come from different sections of the aisle, so I want to get everybody's thoughts. What do you guys think about the current state of political discourse, more specifically the people and how they interact with politics? We can go to different levels, but I'm just kind of curious to hear your general thoughts. Thank you. Go ahead, Jonathan, if you want to go first. Um, Sure. So I think one of the biggest issues and. I think almost everything comes back to this. And I think our founding fathers touched on this to some extent as well, is people don't know why they believe what they believe anymore. And so I think, you know, I think it's a quote attributed to, to Winston Churchill. If you, um, if you don't, if you don't, if you're not a liberal, when you're young, you're heartless. If you're not a conservative, when you're old, you're foolish. And I don't necessarily agree with that because I'm, I'm young and I'm, I'm not on the liberal side. Um, and I know, uh, older people in my family who are died in the world Democrats. I think what it comes down to is, is especially for young people, we find something that hits our fancy and we just kind of go with it. And we don't take time to think through why we necessarily believe in that. So when it's questioned by anybody, even in a sincere manner, when someone's asking, why do you think this? Why do you vote this way? Why do you believe that? And we haven't had the time because I, I would argue we don't even have the cognitive function to think through things in a long-term process anymore um, because of social media and, and whatever. That's a whole other topic. But what it comes down to is, is people don't know why they believe what they believe. So when it's challenged, even in good intention, even for the purposes of, say, sitting down to have a podcast with someone from the opposite perspective, if you don't know why you believe something, you just won't have that topic. You won't have that conversation and we get what we see now in in the, in the media of the, both sides of the political aisle just calling each other names. Essentially, it's like a it's like a schoolyard fight. I think um, the state of American political discourse is pretty bad right now. Uh, every day, I think our country strays further and further into uh, like a higher likelihood of civil conflict. Right. Um, currently, we see a large amount of radicalization from both sides of the aisle right now and moderates are uh, actively being phased out and being seen as crazy people and it kind of leads to a lot of uh problems for the people that uh have the national interest at heart in that of a more center position um i kind of have to agree with jonathan in a way uh i do think that this kind of like old american geist is somewhat gone right uh one of the biggest issues at hand currently is that uh, the death of the American community is something that follows us around every single day, right? Mm. People cannot care for an environment for which they don't live in, right? And uh, one that they barely interact with, one that they barely take part in, uh, one where, you know, they actively go to work every day and they show up home and go immediately to sleep. Uh, they can't engage anymore. Uh, they don't have institutions, either be a, a church, a lodge, or uh, anything in between, Right. The social center of America has kind of fallen out. And as a result, we kind of start to see this uh, rise in um, seeking for like more answers to the current issues. And the problem is, is that the status quo that is like presided uh, seemingly has kind of unconvinced people. And they're starting to step towards this more rad radical path. So like, you know, on my side of the aisle, we have a big issue with communists. Right. Um, we have this big issue with these people 
that uh, either could be fifth columns in and of themselves, or they could be people that are, um, you know, just, uh, I guess, more radical liberals, uh, democratic socialists, as you would call them. And then I'm sure even Jonathan can agree here on his line of the aisle. They have this like issue with these like fascists slash like white nationalists. Right. And then you have like towards the center, like your Trumper-esque types, which are not necessarily super radical. But, you know, I digress. Right. The, the general problem is that um, people have not cared for this country for the longest time. And now uh, because they're so suited in their individual interest through this isolation, they have started pursuing things that might give them more of a sense of meaning and more of a sense of engagement. And that's where these radical actors kind of can step forward and say, I can provide this to you. We see this every single day with a lot of these college kids that go to university. And we see it every single day with some of these older people that might find themselves on a Facebook page or something like that and get uh, lured in. So that's my mm -hmm. I totally, I totally agree with that, especially uh, the the because I'm in college right now and I'm at a pretty liberal college, mm -hmm. um, and I don't know necessarily where you fall. You seem to suggest, Paul, that the communists were kind of the fringer end, but I know dozens and dozens of my 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 peers at college who would identify themselves as as communists, and they don't seem to know their Solzhenitsyn very well about <laughs> what happens when um you do you get i mean this is something very common and that happened in the soviet union um they would uh portray people who go to church as foolishness and they made yeah. their party their church and i think that's one of the problems you know my bible has a a, a quote in uh, the book of ecclesiastes that says god has put eternity in the hearts of man and i don't want to get explicitly religious with with anybody here but the point is there's something in the midst of every person that wants to find an identity that wants to belong somewhere. I happen to believe personally that that is at church, but other people will take that and instead put it in a political party. And there's something inherently quote unquote unreasonable about faith because it's something that is the evidence of things unknown. Essentially you can't sure. know faith. Otherwise it's not faith. And so people are replacing church and that the faith that belongs at church in it's natural right place and they're replacing it with political parties. And that's why they can't explain the way that they feel about certain things, and which is why when it's challenged, they become very violent and very um, overly aggressive, one might say, not necessarily violent. So you, you bring up a lot of great things, and I definitely want to break this up into three categories. I was thinking about a fourth, but I think the fourth category would have been the workplace, but I don't necessarily think the workplace is a place where a bunch of ideas need to be said you know i think it's a place for work um it could be argued but i'm gonna leave it out in terms of this current discussion so there's three areas that i want to focus on in terms of like the most important aspects of you know social political or cultural discourse doesn't really matter um but whether it's developing the ideas or the ideas being challenged or discussed and i think obviously that would be at the home you know the family you know where you grow up um, it could be the community, but very least at the family uh, uh, level. Uh, second is the educational institutions. And I think all across the board, I think for the most part, you could probably even start in middle school, uh, elementary school, probably not, but middle school all the way to college institutions. I think, you know, it's very important spot to really get your ideas developed and obviously the third one would be social media the big one social media and all the fun things that happens in terms of political discourse on social media so to start off when it comes to the the familial level 
one great thing that Jonathan said is that, and I actually was asked about this. Somebody got, uh, someone asked me to come on their podcast and he, and he brought up the idea is like, all right, America is a place where, you know, freedom of religion, um, but we can all accept the idea that the identity, the religious identity, the Christian identity that America was kind of founded upon, so to speak, is non-existent. So we have no inherent identity as a nation in terms of that religious, yeah. you know, uh, situation. Uh, so with that said, if we don't have that unified identity, how does the family or how does anybody really create an identity for themselves to build upon, especially kind of establish their values. Now, I have my own personal answer for that, but I think something important to note here is not necessarily what would fit for you and your group, but what would fit for the general populace. I think sometimes when people go into these conversations, they think about the people closest to them and they go like, oh yeah, this works for us. But like, does it work for them though? Does it work for everybody else that's not you or looks like you or celebrates like you? So I'm curious on your thoughts about if we don't have this unifying identity, how do we establish values for our family and the people close to us? Paul, I'll let you go first on this one. Thank you. Um, so I think that the number one thing that actually could incur some form of identity in a nation is that through um, a care for the community at large. Uh, how do we actually incur such a thing like this? Well, it kind of comes down to a, a couple of brass tacks. Uh, conservatives will often tell you something along the lines of we have religious institutions that can provide answers to those uh, and give them a, a form of meaning. And I'm here to say they're absolutely correct. But I also am here to say that there are other options on the table. To give someone some sort of care or concern and to establish that national identity, there needs to be an aspect of free time that exists. The problem is, is that Americans in this country today fall out of grace with their free time. They come home, they lay about because they're so exhausted from the remedial labor that they go through every single day in this country. And for that, it's very hard to care about your community beyond that of some social media activism or potentially showing up to the school board meeting because that you are so exhausted in terms of your time. You Back in the day, you know, we used to have uh, things that would protect our laborers in this country that could give them more free time to actually go out, get engaged in local politics, go out and get engaged in civil societies, go out and get engaged in the lodges. And now we see that getting wheeled back one step at a time because that the middle class in this country is being suffocated to death by the decrepit work, uh, work uh, civil life dichotomy that exists in this country. Uh, you cannot care for a garden when you don't have time to water it, right? That, that is the big problem at hand. And to have anybody in your family care about it, you need dad at home. You need mom at home. For anybody in your community to care about it, you need the people that tend to that community to be a part of it. But you can't have those people there when they're toiling away just to pay the rising rent crop, rising rent costs in this country or the rising housing costs or the uh, just generalized like uh, inflationary period that we're in. Right. You cannot have people do this because they're so afraid of being homeless, being destitute. And I think that is the number one area that we can look at for the local familial level. It requires people to be at home and to have the free time to actually engage in it. And currently in this country, we are not allowing it. And it's the reason why so many people are becoming individualized and not caring, I guess, in this like um, 
nationalist, I don't want to say that, like patriotic fashion, right? Uh, and it's a failure of our system. Thank you. Mm. That's very interesting. I do want to touch upon that again, but uh, what, what do you think, Jonathan? Um, so, you know, I would agree with a lot of what he said. Um, I would obviously, the first thing that he said is that us conservative types would say church. And I, and I do agree. And I say, um, you should go to church. And it, it seems to me like, so as a conservative, there's something that I, I, I desire to conserve, right? And if there's nothing to conserve, then I'm not a conservative. And it seems to me that for thousands of years, this thing, the church has given people hope and, and hope cannot be overstated. When we're getting back to the, the whole theme of this podcast about, you know, these, the tensions that are in this political discussion, I think one of the big things is it, it seems on, on all sides, people are, are losing hope. That only adds to the level of desperation. And church is something that gives people hope. And so I think it's worked for thousands of people. And as you said, you know, different strokes for different folks, people like different things. And that's, that's great. There's lots of options when it comes to church. You know, me and Paul were talking before the podcast. We're a little bit different on the denominational side. I have other family members that are different on the denominational side. And there's different interpretations of the Bible. It doesn't make it inaccurate. It makes it actually more accurate because, you know, I, Paul can probably attest to this as a private investigator, as he said, um, when you're interviewing witnesses, if everybody tells the exact same story verbatim, that actually means it's less accurate because they're all misremembering together. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, all the different denominations, I think, actually attest to the, the accuracy of the Bible. And I think, as I talked about on the last podcast, we should searching at, we should be searching after truth because truth gives hope. Truth gives, uni- uh, gives this united sense of fulfillment when you're searching for the truth and actually living in the truth together. So I think one of the ways that we can get this thing together is if we're actually dwelling and focusing on the truth. That said, one of the other things that I think Paul said that was a, a fantastic point is you gotta you gotta be able to serve. And I think where me and Paul would disagree a little bit, and and this could be an age thing, it could be just a locations thing. Most of the people in my sphere actually have plenty of time. What they do is they waste it on things like social media. Like I know, so for my age group, uh, around the 20s, um, the average teenager, and, and now it's actually a couple of years hence, and it's, it's getting worse, we spend about four to seven hours a day on our cell phones. And, you know, we could be doing other things, right? We could be, you know, sitting in the passenger of a car, sitting at a restaurant, all these different things. Regardless, we spend about approximately three of those seven hours specifically on social media. And you could be finding other ways to be giving back to community. You could be finding other ways to serve. You can take that time, which it totals to about five years at the end of your life, if not more, depending on how you're spending that time and how much if you're above or below the average, it's different. But we spend years of our lives looking at our phones. That doesn't even count like TV if you watch TV on the side of that as well. And there is something to be said, I think, for the fact that we have to work more now. I mean, we used to see people being able to live off of one person's income. Now for a family, it almost ascend, it almost totally requires two incomes. I think regardless of that, people find time to get on their phone. They can find time to serve the community. We're supposed to serve first. When you serve, 
you find meaning because you're actually taking the focus off of you, which is actually a good thing in a lot of ways. Can I say something really quick? Well, before you say something, I, yeah. I because I had a question for you and what John said um, actually ties into the question at hand, right? So you said something very interesting in referencing time and we talked, you talked extensively in referencing, you know, people having, not having enough time to kind of serve their community, um, to go to their local com uh, communities to talk or advocate for any type of political action or political, you know, law or whatever. Um, one thing that I said personally, and I kind of agree with Jonathan here is that I said it is, you could argue that it is potentially damaging all the free time people are having. Now, the distinction that is being made here, which I thought why I thought your thing, what you said was so interesting, is that there's a distinction between the youth having an extraordinary amount of time, actually, um, after school or whatever, or not, especially if they're not participating in some sports or clubs. Um, and just have either their social media or video games or their own thoughts. And I think something that could you could argue could be very damaging is when they have these thoughts and they have no one to challenge these thoughts and they can go in a potential dangerous road or danger, uh, dangerous type of mindset. But the distinction that you made here is that those people who are obviously not the youth, the working class, the, the older individuals don't have that same amount of time, which is it was just very true. Those people are spending all their time working. Those people are spending all their time doing whatever it needs to uh, for their family or to kind of prosper. And there's different levels. If you're poor, you, you want to make sure they're, that they're even eating or drinking water. If you're middle class, you want to make sure they keep up that middle class standard. If you're rich, you want to make sure they keep up that rich class standard. It's all relative. You could argue they shouldn't think that way, but it is relative, right? So my question here is that in the, I, I talk so much that I almost forgot my question. Hold up. And in the situation where, okay, I remember. In the situation where these people have all, all their time taken away, is it, is, uh, especially when you compare it to like other communities, is it better or worse the fact that they are kind of have their all, all their time taken away and kind of fed an identity to believe in? You know, America doesn't have that, but you may argue another country where they have a, a like solid identity. You may bring up some uh, European country, maybe, or Scandinavian country. They work all day, but they have a solid identity to go to. Is that better than, um, our situation where we don't have a solid identity where you're just as busy or if you're not as busy still not having that solid identity and just question everything to the point of insanity uh what do you think about that it's the crop for us to harvest right it's for us to grow ourselves it's for us to create ourselves and to determine for what we want it to be right the the biggest problem colonial countries, for example, they run into these risks of where you have these norms established by that of like a powerful status quo. And then uh, when actively challenged, this uh, that system fails to justify itself to its people and can result in a form of state decline, right? One of the biggest things I learned in school was the lesson, the lesson of newer nations 
in which the countries like Egypt of like Nasser or Libya underneath Gaddafi all had the same type of things with them, right? Which is they had these presuppositions within their state that they created through the political elite that existed there. And that alone caused so many problems for them. And it could not speak in an area of ideas of many different peoples that existed in that country. For us in our country, it was built by the people that came to this country. It was built by the founding fathers and it was built by every single contributing member of society today. The reason why it's going all down the shitter is simply because that, like I said earlier, people are not having the ability to actually engage anymore. And I, one of the things I wanted to say earlier, right? Um, I'll, like it definitely is, I think, uh, an age thing, Jonathan. You and I probably both know this. I assume you're like into history as well. Uh, young people don't get into politics. And when they do, it's only radical, like radical groups and stuff like that, right? You have the yippies from the 70s and they're just fucking bums, right? Uh, pardon the French. But like the, the reality is, is that the people that build this country day in and day out are 30 to 50 year olds and actively contribute to it, right? You have your voting base and the elderly, of course, but it's people like us that actually get the job done, right? And uh, it, it's just so hard to actually do it, let alone even have a family anymore, right? It's, it's hard to actually have like a kid to come home to because you can't even fucking afford him, right? It's like as if like we're, we're not incentivizing it anymore or something because that we let these companies just like straddle our lives like we're the fucking horse, right? So it, it's just very frustrating every single day to see people that I know, you know, get paid little under $40,000 a year, right? Because they didn't have the opportunity to go to school and they are, they, they barely can support their kid. They turn to alcohol, they turn to drugs, they turn to a wide variety of other areas and they just become absolute monsters because of that inability of our government and that inability of our society to regulate these larger companies or rather even just like generalized companies to actually uh, regulate the pay and the labor that these people have to work, right? Back in the day, if, you, if I had talked to someone like my grandpa, for example, he would have a pension when he retired. He would be, uh, he would have uh, significantly more vacation days. He would have extend, um, like more days off within a schedule and he would even have more PTO, right? That is something of the past now, right? And there's no labor regulation that's come into power in this country to actually counteract that. Mm. That's what I want to say. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, no problem. You the interesting part about this that both Paul and Jonathan indicated for the family values is one important thing is really, you know, spending your time, spending your labor in impacting the community, um, gaining perspective on what is actually going on, having that time to do so. And I've made the argument before that in order for you to establish proper values in the first place is you need that type of experience. You need that type of perspective. You need to be involved and experience enough things for you to have a wide encompassing um, mindset, in my personal opinion. And uh, what Jonathan indicated from my from my understanding is obviously a lot of values can be found from the church. A lot of values can be found um, from finding the truth that you're that you're referencing. Uh, so to kind of play devil's advocate, well, first for you, Jonathan, for the people who are atheists who really don't want to believe in religion, whether or not they whether or not it's something personal or they just really don't want to waste time in, you know, religious activities. How do they establish their values um, in comparison? So 
I would say as as our Lord said, serve first, right? And he specifically says, serve first the kingdom of God for all blessings and righteousness we found onto you. But that is one of these things that can, I think, be generally um, applied, uh, similar to what Paul was saying, is finding that time to serving your community. Um, that's how you derive this this uh, these values. You have to serve other people. And when you serve other people, it's actually, it's kind of almost a selfish act to serve other people. Um, because what you have to keep in mind is you don't just serve to know and, and to try to seek something back. You serve people selflessly. And when you serve people selflessly, not which is not expecting something in return, you actually get such a level of satisfaction. And from that, you can derive these sense of values. You can, you can appreciate where you live when you're serving to restore your community. One of the things that I did is several times is uh, my church would uh, organize these missions that are to local communities. And so we would paint fences. We would pick up trash in the streets. We would uh, barbecue every night and just give it away to people. We would walk. One of the ways that we as America got lost is we delegated that task away from the church and to the state. Um, and I think it, that's something that rightfully belonged to the church. And I think churches should get back to that. And I think people in churches should push to give that back. That is a role that I don't think was ever supposed to be adopted by the state. But it's those sorts of things that the state now does. And if you're one of these people who don't want to go to church um, and, you know, I think a lot of times that's a justified feeling these days because I could go, I could do a 10 hour long podcast on, on the state of the church and how it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's ran by people and people are flawed. So any institution run by man is flawed because man himself is flawed, but there's justifiable reasons on why not wanting to go to church. I think you should go to church, obviously, but regardless, there are these uh, community missions that are now done by local governments, by uh, even federal institutions um, that you can take a part of to help rebuild your community. Because when you serve something, you come to appreciate it. Uh, I don't think love is quite the right word there, but you come to appreciate it. And instead, we have students uh, who are taught to hate America because they believe America is an inherently evil place. And that's not going to be good for our, our public identity to grow together and to grow more mature. Instead, you should find your local institutions, you should find your local governments, and you should seek to serve those communities and learn to appreciate where you're living because it's a because we live in one of the most amazing nations, most amazing places on the planet, and I can attest because I've been to many different places. Yeah. All right. So with that said, Maho, my 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 devil's advocate point for you is the understanding that the workers our laborers should be treated better i think is you know a lot of people can agree with that sentiment but in order to kind of change the system that's going to be a long and arduous process obviously um whether it's you know uh you know campaigning uh for specific labor laws or uh I forget the word, but you're petitioning against your uh, uh, your workplace to do certain things. I'm blanking on what word that is, but striking, striking or I think there's another word. Unionization. Unionization. There you go. There you go. Paul yeah. knew it. So gotcha. 
Uh, so in those situations, you know, those can be a long, a long process, obviously. So with that said, in the midst of said process that should be working on, and we'll have plenty of conversations on how you do that, in the midst of that, how do these families establish their values if they're not religious, if they... Um, let's say even if they don't want to get it from their political different the two parties the two political ideologies how would you say the best way for them to form the proper values for their family and their kids sure so i i wasn't and, and forgive well, let me let paul would... answer that first and oh, then you can oh. answer jonathan yeah so um i think that uh there's like a little like um, a bit of like a presupposition here um I'm not one to say like a perfect way of life for which these families like find, right? I think this is up to them. But that the largest thing that actually dictates someone's view of the world is through the lived experience that they encounter themselves, right? Um, either that of abject poverty, uh, backbreaking work in the middle class, or maybe that of decadence and, um, you know, the upper classes of our society, right? These are all the things that actively uh, illustrate our lives. Faith is a thing that plays a big part in it, right? Some of us might have uh, extra things that build upon the fundamentals by which we act, right? Jonathan and I are probably two people that have these things in our lives that dictate them or act as like truths for us. But for others that don't have these things, the number one thing I can simply say is it does come down to politics, right? Uh, the institutions that preside over you and taking control of them uh, through your interest alone is something that ought to be done if you do not have these uh, things that are there. You can have social support groups, of course. You can have like uh, your community that's there. But at the end of the day, if you want to make your life better, it comes through you voicing your interest to your party, right? For me, my answer simply would be, obviously, as a Democrat, to rid the Republicans away legislatively, right? Like uh, to like win in all the elections as we can, right? Uh, to get out there and uh, beat them back every single day. Take over the South as soon as possible and uh you know get the job done right <laughs> but if for example if you're like a uh, from a conservative atheist family then go ahead with the elephant and get out there and get it with the gop and get what you need to be done i'm not someone that can really tell you how you find these systems or anything like that right because i have my own lived experience and i can't really uh, relate to anybody else's in that regard right but what i can tell you is that if you want to shape your destiny it comes down to the institutions that preside over you and you taking them and controlling them the way you want through your vote and your voice. All right. Jonathan, you said you, you, you wanted to say something. Um, so I was actually, I, I, I agree with Paul to a certain extent on that. Uh, if you don't have church, then your only option is politics because what else is going to give you a system of values? Um, there, there is nothing. Um, there's, a lot of people, especially on, on my side of the aisle as, as conservative, but particularly Christian, and we could, I don't want to continue to bring it back to this because this is a primarily political show, but I think to some extent you can't separate these two issues of religion and politics because they're so systematically similar that they, they're bound to lap over. But an argument can be made that it is this religious aspect of life that gives people values in the first place. So if you're not going to get it, from church and you're not going to get it from politics, the most similar thing um, in church just by nature, where are you going to derive that from? And Paul mentioned these things, lived experiences. And I don't give a whole lot of credit uh, or credence to lived experience um, 
because it requires a, a phrase like that, and Paul might be able to correct me in my interpretation, but it, it requires an interpretation of phenomenon. And Friedrich Nietzsche, one of the great philosophers of previous ages, said there's no such thing as moral phenomena, only moral interpretations of phenomena. And I don't think that's true. Uh, fundamentally, I believe there are moral phenomena. Everything is is coded as, you know, there's a little bit of gray in there, but uh, a, a good thing or a bad thing. And to say that you can have a lived experience that says good things can be bad things and bad things can be good things, it all depends on where you start and where you want to go. I don't think that's true because there are more than moral interpretations of phenomena. There are actually moral phenomena that we witness and we see and we can feel. And I think a lot of times our, our senses of perception as humans are fallible because we're fallible creatures, which is why uh, so many people throughout history have relied on things like the church and things like the teachings of the gospel to help them with that because we're fallible creatures that make mistakes often. I am far from a perfect creature, uh, very flawed, very flawed. And therefore, because I am flawed, my interpretations of events can be flawed. Can I respond to that? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I think that, um, like, I think, like, obviously, your notion of this is, like, incorrect, right? Um, I believe, like, concretely, that the way we interpret things throughout the world, right, uh, if you do not have, like, a faith-based uh, value set behind you, right, where we, like, uh, believe all this is, like, through God's uh, creation and existence is something that then we just uh, do through discovery, either through the sciences, through our, uh, like, the philosophies in which we try to explain the world itself, Right. And I think that um, whether or not you believe it's right, uh, what it is, is it's something that exists amongst people that actually are there. Right. I'm speaking in the literal term of how people actually find the world for themselves and how they shape their ideologies or their value sets. Right. For example, you know, if you're like uh, beaten poor, you're probably going to have more of a likelihood to have a negative disposition towards the police. Right. If you live in like an urban environment or something like that, if you're someone that uh, grows up in like a suburban community that has active community engagement like mine, you believe that that's something that's really great to have. But if you live in like a, some more urban environment where that might not be necessarily the case and everyone's bustling to work every single day, then it might not be a number one concern. So that's what I meant by that. Right. Like uh, if there's like any confusion on that, that's why I'm calling it incorrect. Sure. But so my point, I'm sorry, Riddell, can I, I don't want to derail your podcast here i mean i called y'all co-hosts so you're not really derailing anything so go for okay. it so uh i i totally understand where you're coming from but this is my thing right so you you brought up specifically police right and if you're poor and broke in an urban city you might perceive police as a bad thing is that is that correct yeah correct yeah, yeah. You're like more and then if you're in a suburban area you might perceive the police as a good thing Correct. But police are either good things or bad things, right? There's bad police in good areas and there's good police in bad areas, right? But as a uh, whole, we have decided that we want this thing called police to uphold the laws of our nations. And if you are uh, in a poor and broke and, and crime-ridden area, you might perceive the police as bad, but that's because you, there's a bunch of crimes being committed and you're possibly one of the people that is committing the correct. crime. So of yeah. course you're not going to like the police there. That doesn't mean that my lived experience as a poor, broke person is 
inherently correct because I am perceiving sure. it. It could mean that I have a flawed perception. Okay, of yeah, reality. yeah. I, I see where the the issue is here, right? I'm not talking about things that are realities, or I'm not talking about things that are truths, right? I think that's like the fundamental misunderstanding here. I'm talking about by which people actually construct their own real realities before them and how they perceive the world, right? Comes through a lived experience. Now, if someone was to tell me like their anecdote on life and how that's a proof. I would obviously just blow them away, right? Because, Beautiful. yeah, there's no fucking reason to care about that. I can tell you as a liberal who resides amongst my liberal colleagues, there's nothing that grinds my gears more than people that try to step in with their own personal stories and tell me about how that trumps the facts on the issue, right? These people are scum and they're, uh, if anything, thugs, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not worth having around. So if that's something you wanted to agree with me on, I 100% can, right? But the thing that is, should be mentioned is that uh, for a lot of people that might not have uh, faith or anything like that, they have to construct it themselves either through the researches of like philosophies or uh, through like um, just the generalized live experience if they don't have the time to read the books or they don't want to read the books, right? These are things that they just like find out themselves. And these are the things that they construct for them and the ideologies that will follow suit, right? There are some poor people that become rich and they become conservative because they put in the hard work to do it. And they don't like the handouts because that they didn't need one themselves, right? But then there are poor people that got the handouts and then got up on top and they believe in those things to be true, right? That's all I'm talking sure. about. I, I, yeah. I, by no means am I saying an anecdote is a truth, right? I want to make that very, very clear. Nope. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very important distinction. Um, a very a lot of very interesting things were said over here, and one thing from my perspective, I, I definitely follow in line with the idea that experience and gaining these different perspectives are ex extremely valuable. Um, I, I do think that you could definitely gain a lot of identity and a lot of values from politics or from religion, of course. But I think for the most part, in order to truly kind of develop a, a system that is the most kind of efficient for yourself, you got to kind of gain a different gauge on how different values kind of incorporate with your own belief system. And my thing is, especially for people like you guys said a lot of uh different uh types of people and their different situations and how they perceive uh different phenomenon like you mentioned earlier whether it's a guy who's uh poor who hates the police or someone in the suburbs who loves the police from said guy who may try to uh, break into their house and i think in order for a person to truly understand the the scope on why someone, for example, likes the police, they will have to kind of enter those different spaces to kind of learn the different perspectives on what makes this good versus what makes this bad. So my personal belief is in order to do that, you have to really, you don't, obviously you can't, okay, I want to be suburban now. I want to live in a suburban area to, to, um, to figure out what it means to be have a suburban value obviously that's uh not realistic sure you could do your own research uh read books watch videos listen to podcasts but i think the a very the important thing here is the interaction the involvement the conversations you have as an individual to another person that falls in a different line uh different spectrum or different way of life um which is why when we're having this conversation about political discourse, one important or not good thing that people need to realize that is kind of falling away is the aspect of not only less involvement in your communities, but less willingness to have discussions or conversations with different aspects of different ideologies because 
oh, well, you may be influenced by the radicals thinking if I talk to this person, that means I'm et cetera, et cetera, whatever label you want to throw in there. So there's you can go on a lot of different routes, whether you, you want to find a holistic identity to kind of frame your values from like the church or you want to frame uh, your values from being politically involved in your community to kind of see what is going on and how I can help. Or like I said, you have at the very least conversations with different types of people to really learn, okay, what are you about? You don't have to kind of interview them, but conversing about topics that you may even not feel comfortable, comfortable about, I believe is extremely, extremely valuable. So that's where I come from in terms of establishing said values. And I think all these solutions are very valuable, which is why I try to break down like the devil's advocate point, because sometimes I, I know this for a fact, actually, sometimes when people hear, oh, that doesn't apply to me because that, so I'm not going to hear his advice. So you really got to break it down. It's like, hey, nope, think about it a little bit more. This is what I'm talking about. And you could definitely enter this space if you do one of the things that we mentioned today. If so I might just go for it, go for it. Right off that point, I think a lot of people um, are have a flawed understanding of how well they understand themselves. I think, and this is what you were saying, you know, oh, that doesn't apply to me because of X, Y, Z. But have you really sat down and thought about it? Have you really sat down and like tried to understand yourself very well? This is something that a lot of people think they know themselves, but they really don't. We really don't know ourselves very well. We don't actually, especially now with the advent of podcasts, audiobooks, music for streaming, we don't actually spend a lot of time with ourselves anymore. It's always listening to some form of media of some kind or other. And we don't really know ourselves very well. So we don't really take the time to think these things out. That's all yeah. I want to say there. Well, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like um, the, it's like, for example, there's this like, notion of exposure that can like drive someone to change their mind uh, maybe even like the realm of debate the free marketplace of ideas right the reality is is that the majority of americans are entrenched in their beliefs already right and to change them through argument is something that takes uh, significant amounts of time almost a mentorship politically right between one individual and the next right uh, the best way to really fundamentally change someone's ideology isn't really through exposure it's through politicking right through parties that actively convince masses to actually get on board with a specific issue. But uh, maybe personally, right? Like if Jonathan and I were like having a beer together or something like that, then he and I could talk about it day in and day out, right? Or we could talk to a layman at the bar or whatever, right? But um, generally- I just want to be clear, um, just in case, you know- Yeah, go ahead. You may uh, misinterpret it. At the very least where I'm coming from, I have no interest in the idea of people need to change other people's minds, but okay. my my the important aspect here for me is like the widen widening of the perspective and understanding on where someone else is coming from. I think that's yeah. inherently more valuable by widening your perspective, well, taking account that okay, I'll consider it. I may may not believe what you're saying, but now I understand what you're saying. That's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, I mean, they say, I forget exactly who said it. One of you might be able to, to tell me, but the mark of a true intelligent person is the ability to entertain an idea without accepting it. 
I think that's what you're trying to say, Rodell, and that's what I was trying to say as well, is we be, we are, like Paul said, so entrenched in our ideas that we don't even take the time to think about why do I think this? I mean, I think it's because we don't spend a lot of time asking ourselves why we think something. Because we don't well, have free I was time. trying to <laughs> add on to what Rodell said and that I'm not particularly interested either in trying to convince someone one way or another. I just want you to not be like captured by ideology. Yeah, and I, I do think what you just said, Paul, in terms of not having a lot of free time is, you know, a very important point to make um, because these people who are not inherently entrenched in a specific ideology because they don't have time to even listen or consume other different types of uh, information, those people are the perfect people to have conversations with other people in the little amount of free time they have by actually gaining experience and gaining perspective. The other people who are entrenched because they have all this free time or because they're super endowed in terms of whether they're fit their faith or their culture or whatever it is, those people obviously probably won't change their mind, but I do think them getting more perspective is, uh, is good too, especially to the people, them at the very least informing other people that kind of fall in either that middle or that center, right, center, left. She's like, Oh, this is where I'm coming from. Let yeah. me help them inform. Okay. Let me, let me think about things a little bit more deeply. Yeah, I definitely think that um, like we kind of run into a problem a lot of the times in terms of like how we like understand each other. But I will say, you know, looking back in the day, uh, one of the big things that was kind of like a general uh, prospect um, was just not to talk about it at all. Right. Uh, like, uh, for example, I'm sure we all remember or we've talked to our moms and dads and they said, oh, you know, you never ask who someone voted for. Right. Uh, maybe that was like probably during the Obama administration when I heard that today. That's not the case at all anymore, right? People yeah. are all into talking like first about date it. question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's like it's it's crazy. It's like uh, we've completely digressed from it, right? This entrenchment has uh, gone so crazy, in fact, that it is uh, you know tearing families apart. I have a neighbor down the street. I swear to God, um, big DNC lady, and uh, when she found out that my family was conservative, uh, she stopped talking to us um yeah like and, and by the way by the way by the way i'm a i'm a huge liberal right like i'm like a social democrat at heart and because of guilt by association right i was cut off it's like absolutely unreal and similarly i have peers that uh, have conservative families who can't show up to thanksgiving or christmas anymore because of their views or involvement in parties Right. I think this all just kind of comes down to and disregard in terms of how people are so violent with their beliefs is because it's all people might have that they feel as of worth. Right. This is like the most relevant thing in their lives nowadays. Right. And I, it is, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt you, Paul. Oh, yeah. It's just the most significant thing that's going on. Right. And, and, and it really sucks because uh, before. You know, obviously, I'm not going to talk politically here because uh, the notion of like working together through bipartisanship, I think, is a joke, right? Like, I think this is like something that's never necessarily existed politically in this country, unless it's like on war or something like that. And uh, bleeding heart liberals will tell you every night, night and day that that used to be the good old days. They're fucking liars, right? Um, but that being said, societally, there was this bipartisanship that was going on, and it is gone now. 
It is like, I, I'm not even saying it's going away. It is actually gone. The amount of peers I have that are so entrenched by politics on their, uh, you know, like hourly consumption of it, right? Because they don't have much time to actually consume it. So on their free time in bed, they might watch it, right? The views they get from it and then the, the uh, brashness and negativity they espouse to their loved ones is just absolutely unreal. Go ahead, John. So I'm just going to share a little bit of an anecdote on why I think it's important that we have something that unites us beyond politics. Because I think, like you said, the bipartisanship tendencies or or, or belief in that, I think is a joke. I don't think it's really feasible. Um, I think third parties are are feasible. Um, And I think the bipartisan nature of our politics is it's to some extent uh, flawed, but uh, so my family uh, very uh, was very anti-vaccine when the vaccine was coming out. And I don't want to say, I don't want to talk about the vaccine stuff like that. Hot, very hot topic. I don't want to go be pro or against it. Um, but so um, obviously my family is Christian and my dad was down in uh, Peru where the vaccine was this uh, salvation for them because they were dying en masse. Uh, same thing in Guatemala when I went there. Uh, and so this thing was um, seen as a very beneficial thing. People were hoping and praying that the Christian church that we have down there was hoping and praying that God would bring them the vaccine. And uh, the atheists out there might say, well, why are they praying to God for a vaccine? That's foolish. God doesn't exist. Not quite the point of the story. Point of the story is when my dad was talking to the pastor of that church about the vaccine and why he doesn't think he should get it, the pastor looked at him square in the face and said, "Yeah, but you're not—you're more of an American than you are a Christian," and that like shook my dad's like blew his mind because damn I mean, bar grew, right there, <laughs> yeah, right, boom, roasted fool. But I mean, my my grandpa is the person who founded the church that we go to, and so to be told that like like when we were talking about like politicking and convincing people to become democrat or liberal i'm or democrat or conservative rather uh, i'm not particularly interested in that because i identify myself first as a christian first and foremost and that delineates all the other areas of my life so for my and same thing for my dad so to be told that you are more of an american than a christian is like a fundamental chiseling down to the core of how he perceived himself and so he came back and told this story and we're like well why are we like this? And it, it caused a lot of people in my family, my immediate family, to reconsider the priority of our values. And I think that is one of these issues that we have uh, in this perceptions of who we are as Americans. We used to be a family of God, country, family. But now it, it's not quite like that anymore. It's like personal desires yeah. and then politics if not politics and personal desires, and then family and somewhere down the line, you know, I might get church. And I'm not saying that church is where you have to necessarily be. I think it is myself, but we're not even out on the same ballpark of country first. We are whatever I am currently desiring at this present moment. That's what I desire first. And then the will of the party and then the will of the people. And I think that's where we have a lot of this hostility and the point of that story is we came back and we decided that, well, the reason I don't want this vaccine is because of X, Y, Z. And that's not a very good reason. I ended up getting it because I, I love to travel. And so I wasn't, I was told I wasn't going to be able to travel. Uh, so I got the vaccine. 
um which one i got is nobody's business so don't ask but the point is is we need this something that is unifying uh, we need something that can help us and it's not going to be a holdout for bipartisan voting in the senate or the house it's got to be something that is above all of that it's got to be something that is able and and powerful enough in our lives to kind of delineate out the other values because if we're just the whims of the day like there's one day i swear that i'm going to exercise at five in the morning every single day the next day i'm like you know what i'm going to go for donuts today like the the willpower of humans to create a unifying force is very menial Mm. i i think i think i'd have to disagree though um like although like with like christ in my life and something that actively encourages me uh, to live it through in his name, right? The thing I have to acknowledge is the fact that people aren't uh, usually unable to actually uh, like form some form of like uh, mass action or to come together, right? Uh, I I guess I'm like very, uh, what's the word for a black pilled on this, right? Like I, I'm very not confident at all uh, when it comes to this type of notion. I genuinely believe that there needs to be some sort of political or uh, leadership infrastructure that needs to be set to uh, kind of try to gauge what the interests are of the constituency and then execute it through leadership in the best way they see fit. Uh, I, the, I'll tell you, you know, as someone that's done organizing in the past um, and like I did stuff with like uh, during like the BLM days, whenever you kind of look towards people to actually try to come together naturally, it always falls through. Yeah. That's uh, why you need church in the first place. That's sure. Why, like I need that unifying I, thing, not the ability of the people. So I want to say one thing. I want to pitch into that. Um, although I'm not religious personally, so I, I can't inherently agree that we would need uh, need church. Um, but I don't deny the value of church. I've always said I'm more of like agnostic. I say the value of church is definitely prevalent as for a lot of people. I think a lot of people benefit from it. I think people like me necessarily, I don't I don't need um, personally. So with that said, I do think something to kind of kind of create a similarity in my opinion that kind of falls in line with the notion that you're uh saying is i do think you could argue that certain people can benefit from a uh foremost identity or system that kind of branches to other parts of their identity later on so whether or not that be american or whatever if you have a foremost foundational system that kind of pushes you forward so you're not kind of relying on, like you said, a feeling the next day. Um, and that could be a lot of different things. Um, if uh, if I have to say one for me, it's like the one of the most important aspects of me is making sure that I'm living life to enjoy life. And there's a whole lot of kind of things in terms of the subjectivity of joy and all that stuff. I'm not going to go into that now, right now, but I will say it since I have this system, I kind of correspond a lot of things from it. Right. So although I can't inherently agree that we need a unifying religion because I'm not religious, um, I do think the notion of having a single most single most foundational system to kind of correspond all your identities and all your kind of decisions can be inherently valuable. Would it work for the general populace? Cause I always have to expand um, things is, or I always have to expand these type of solutions or these type of ideas. I don't know if it would inherently work for the mass population, but it could. I think if it's probably something like religion, it probably could. Um, 
in America, I'm not really sure. Not anymore, anyway. So I don't know what that unifying got in. Would it be being American? I'm not. That probably wouldn't work either because some people hate America's guts. Uh, so at that situation for America, I don't even. I don't know if that. Even though I agree with the premise, I don't even know if that would work for like America as a whole, personally, because of how divided we are with all these different things. So that's my take on it. Do you guys have anything else you want to say to this before we kind of move on to the the next topic? I'm good personally. All right, all right, sounds good. Um, so the the another aspect that I want to talk about in terms of discourse is, like I said, educational educational institutions, right? My personal opinion in regards to the value of these institutions is that they should. A big part of it should be the ability to question and get ideas challenged. I think a inherent purpose of being an educational institution is developing your mind, developing ideas, and obviously gaining knowledge and learning, right? So I think a forefront for uh, thing that a lot of these institutions should be doing more so is having these nuanced perspective and conversations to have all the ideas that they have in their minds challenged, especially when they're fed these different kind of like ideologies, whether it's from social media, whether it's from their family, whether it's from their parents or whether it's from any institution. Now, I'm one thing I just want to establish real quick. I'm not saying that you have a system where people are adamantly challenging their way of life, but I'm saying you should be able to have these conversations. You could argue which levels these conversations should be had. I think college, obviously, high school, maybe middle school. I think you perhaps, but you could probably have these conversations in middle school, but to each their own. So I think that is a could be inherently valuable, and not only kind of progressing different values, especially to, as an individual. If you get if you constantly have these conversations, because as I said, I think nuanced perspective and conversations is valuable to establish values. I think if you do that as at young at a young age, younger age, that can also be very valuable. So that is my um, kind of thing in regards education institution I, moving forward. I think that should be implemented. So what, what do you guys think about that? Go ahead, Paul. Uh, you got it, John. <laughs> okay. Um, so Look at I... the liberal and conservative being polite to each other. It's great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Unheard of. Um, so I think. I'll, I'll defer to what John Adams said, one of our founding fathers, when it comes to education. Um, in, uh, in a letter to the Abbe de Meble, he wrote, uh, who was going to write a, a, a history of the American Revolution. Um, one of the things that uh, John Adams said is, is, is you can't. You can't write a history of the American Revolution because you're not an American. You don't understand what we did. But if you're going to anyways, you have to consider these couple of things. And one of the things he pointed out that was very important is the education system, which is supposed to be a local government institution and is to, to teach uh, arithmetic, English, um, history, and I believe um, uh, it was four things. It was history, English, arithmetic, and maybe it was Latin. I don't quite remember. But the three primary things is uh, 
arithmetic or mathematics, history and English, proficiency in English. And I think those three things also correspond very well with a cultivation of logical reason. If you can logically think through arithmetic, you can write your thoughts down and, and good articulation, um, and you can read and appreciate and learn history, then you're pretty much set. Um, and somewhere along the lines, we kind of lost that. And we focused, I think, too much on one thing. The STEM fields uh, are beautiful, amazing. We need our STEM people. But for some reason, those became like the, the highest thing you can attain to and achieve is the STEM fields. And a lot of people aren't very good at them. And so at least in, in my life, when I was growing up in the school system, I was not really uh, much of a math person. I've always um, felt more towards history and, and poetry. I love to write poetry. I love to read and write. We talked about this a little bit last time, Riddell. We both like to read. We're both writers. And writer, typically, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche. You're either a math person or an English person. And if you're an English person, you kind of feel like a, an odd duck or an ugly duck uh, because you don't, you're not good at math. And math is like, oof, it's everything. Um, and we're getting away from that, that balance of those three primary things. Um, and we're over-focusing on one and then we can get into the whole issue of, you know, the dwelling on ideology, which we sh obviously shouldn't do, but we need to get back to teaching those three things as equally value and important, uh, and having these political discussions, I don't think they, they should take place, especially in middle school or high school. I think you should, if you want to opt into that sort of thing in college you should certainly be allowed to uh, but we have this discussion on and on and on in our uh, um in our political debates and uh, public discussions of it when people uh, have fully developed brain capacities and we have decided it is certainly not by the age of 18. Uh, i'm in courses right now where we're talking about juvenile justice and they don't want uh, uh, plea agreements for juveniles because they can't comprehend the workings of the court system well enough to know exactly what's going on. There's this idea that they're too impulsive, uh, young adults, especially young men, because our brains aren't developed until 24. So why are we going to inundate them with these very contentious political debates that is splitting full-grown adults down the seams into points where we're ostracizing family members and we're going to trust that they can work them out at this young of an age. I think it's silliness and it's not the place of school anyways. Can I hear the question one more time? Just so like, I'm like clear, I don't miss it. So kind of the general idea is that when it comes to educational institutions, I personally believe it should be a place to have ideas challenged, to have the nuanced discussions that we were talking about earlier, to gain that different perspective, because th this is an education um, uh, location where so many different people are going to be having their own individual ideas. Um, the question on whether or not it should be something that should be implemented for middle, high school, and, and college, all three could be argued at the very least college is unanimous probably but high school and middle school can be argued um so the question is basically what do you what do you think about that in terms of education's roles and really having these you know experiences well i i guess i feel as if like uh education in our country is to uh build the next generation to step forward bravely into that new world right to uh, be part of the political or uh, social or genuine infrastructure of this country, right? Uh, but the ideas that they embrace themselves are something that 
uh, they should find themselves and come to their own conclusions on, right? Uh, to For the notion of like facilitating debate in class, I think that you can get into an elective of some sort. But I think that uh, that current system that we have right now is pretty good in this regard. I don't really believe that the classroom is a place for this thing type, type of thing to be happening, all right? Um, for like a couple of reasons, like number one, I think that, uh, our uh, teachers are already stretched thin when it comes to their genuine resources that they have to actually teach the general subject matter at, at home or sorry, at school. Uh, two, I think that, uh, with the current political divisions, a lot of these kids and their families, uh, could probably break out in more violence or neglect towards one another. And then uh, three, I think that the biggest issue uh, that could come from this, if it was something that was like facilitated and to generalize curriculum, is that it could actually create even more backlash politically on school boards, right? Let's say, for example, you have a um, uh, like a liberal conglomerate of students at a school, right? And they're talking about something like uh, trans rights or something, right? that is like despised amongst um, a conservative group at the school, probably like a majority in this case. There's a notion like at least here in the state of Florida, or not even a notion, like a reality that um, can happen where like these uh, schools can actually like see civil suits like filed against them uh, for teaching about uh, certain objects like this, right? Uh, it's like on the legislator right now to like uh, get pushed through. And these are things that I just don't think can be facilitated currently. Now, if this is something I want to look forward to in the future, right? If we are a more united society, uh, then yeah, I think so, right? But currently, I think with the deep-rooted division in this country, it's not much help. I think that the colleges are the place to do it. And I'm sure Jonathan can agree with me because he's going through school right now. Uh, colleges are not the place of debate right now, right? Uh, they're, they, if anything, they're kind of a place of consensus, right? Uh, and it, uh, it, it kind of sucks, right? Uh, like I'll tell They're you, supposed I'll, to be the, the place yeah, to be. like the, so the, just to like give an anecdote here, one of the things that like will always live with me was we were having a conversation about um, like, you know, defunding the police and stuff like that. This is like my senior year of school. And um, the, <laughs> the big thing that I kind of came away with, right. Is like, I tried to like uh, explain to people that the layman, uh, and like elderly and the general voters and a lot of these communities that, uh, you know, suffer the police brutality that's being talked about, they still have a generalized pro-police sympathy, uh, sympathy or at least pro-police presence. Right. And I mean, I was almost gawked out of the classroom. Uh, the, the thing that kind of turned me away from, I guess, a lot of this uh, far left wing stuff was these moments. And it kind of compelled me to uh kind of just like politically destroy these people <laughs> and make sure that they they really can't see the light of discourse ever again um but it's something that was very prevalent i had a dutch sociology teacher who um didn't know anything about uh geopolitics whenever we would try to actively talk about them it was something that was called in the question but as soon as i started talking about something that was domestic i would be sent emails i was referred to the dean I even considered going into a class action lawsuit, right? Because of the, the, the things that were forced against me. But that being said, if we can regulate stuff like that out of colleges, colleges should be the places for that discourse, right? They shouldn't be the places for consensus. 
But for middle school and high school, I say no currently. The division is too strong, and the role of parents in particular is something I'm deeply concerned about if we look at the political volatility and uh, revolving around it. So, yeah, that's all I have to say. So my my thing in reference, I, I do, I definitely agree in terms of the current state, just throwing it in there and, hey, I have this political debate. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. I agree to that for sure. Um, I do think when it comes down to, uh, I'm going to provide an antidote for college and then reroute back to the middle school and high school thing to kind of elicit how I would go about it. Um, I have an antidote because I went to a liberal arts college. Right now, for me, for the most part, I was waving between Democrat, Republican, not really sure what I want, what I was. So for the most part, I probably could say that I was middle my entire life or I was one of the other at some point in time. Uh, so with that said, I didn't really mind interacting with liberals, Democrats, conservative Republicans. I didn't mind. I didn't care um, if you were a cool person then we'll probably hang out. So I had a friend at this liberal arts college. He was adamantly very clearly a Republican, right? So he was a Republican and this is during- I like that guy. <laughs> oh, he's, he's a, he's an interesting fella. He, he, he supported Trump before the, before a lot of the crazier things that happened as of recently. I don't know if he still supports Trump, but I know he supported Trump back then in college. So he supported Trump, uh, avid Republican. He was absolutely despised by so many people at our liberal arts college. For obvious reason, it's full of liberals, full of liberals. They thought he was racist, even though I'm black and he was friends with me. They thought he was sexist. He thought he was a whole bunch of things. Probably one of the nicest guys I met. He's from Minnesota. Like, dude, super nice. Um, but immediately putting that kind of identity, this negative connotation in front of him, they weren't willing to kind of even converse with them. Now, for me, because I didn't really fall in line with, you know, I was I didn't consider my myself Republican necessarily. I can have all these conversations with all these different people, but for him, nobody would really want to talk to him. So that mm -hmm. completely falls in line with your with Paul what Paul's saying in terms of the toxicity of consensus going on in these college institutions, especially when they identify themselves as something like a liberal arts institution, or I'm sure you could find the institution that ha that uh, sways heavy red. So that is a problem. I 100% agree. So in terms of kind of my idea of how it would work in middle school and high school, um, as of right now, discussing politics probably would be off the table. Um, I would say anything in terms of political uh, political discussion and religious discussion, probably off the table in terms of middle school or high school. But I personally do believe that middle schools and high schools can have nuance and deep conversations. And I do th believe that these educational institutions, one of the more forefront uh, reasons why or forefront things that these education institutions should be doing is developing the mind. I believe that there's so much inefficiencies in our current education system. Like m most people don't even retain like 85% of the things they've learned in school. Like I could probably teach a middle schooler X, Y, and Z, and it would probably be smarter than a 40 year old because I do think they can develop and grow their minds in a very efficient manner. But mm -hmm. in the current state of politics, I would say probably in a very, 
maybe a Socratic way, the the instructor or whoever's in charge. So if it's about politics, no. If it's about religion, no. But you can have deep conversations about some other topics that could still expand their perspective and expand their way of thinking. Whether it's about history, it's like, okay, why did this happen? I don't think the uh, questions well. being asked, it, history can sway into yeah, politics a little say. bit. I do agree to that. I think I mean, you would have to be kind of, yeah. you would have to be a very nuanced. But I, I, I also agree with what you said, Paul. The teachers really have to buy in like they really have to buy in for this to work um yeah. which is another problem because some teachers are bad and some teachers are just treated very badly well if i can comment on that so like there's this like kind of current dichotomy in american public school teaching right now that um is kind of like permeating so currently the due to the astoundingly poor wages for the majority of american teachers a lot of teachers are now, um, you know, so low in morale that they kind of teach so they can get their pension, right? Yeah. Uh, this is like a, kind of like a really fucked up thing to say. But um, in my experiences, and I think even the data now corroborates it. I think it was uh, maybe Rasmussen that did the poll on it. But um, this is something that is becoming more and more frequent because of our governments, both our state, local, and federal neglect upon education. And then furthermore, uh, at least in the state of Florida, and how we're abandoning these people uh, to the culture war, right? And how we're like kind of throwing them under the bus. The, it's just that you can't have a classroom work without motivation, right? Yeah. And without any sort of concerted effort by the staff, both the administrators and the teaching personnel, nothing really can get done. And the only way really to solve it is by supporting teachers through the legislature, legislature, right? It doesn't happen anywhere else. Like, uh, you know, I've talked to my mom about this. She always like brings up like how we can do it socially, right? This doesn't matter. Uh, or rather it matters very little. Uh, we're talking about money here. And this is the only thing that can actually really get the job done in terms of the financing of these teachers and through the government supporting them. Whether you, however you feel, for example, on like the trans stuff in schools or the CRT stuff in schools, right? I'm sure we can all agree uh, parents shouldn't be able to sue their fucking schools and uh, deprive them of the finances based off of what's taught in curriculum. That's something that should uh, just result in the teacher's removal. But in the state of Florida, what we have going on right now is like, for example, if you had some nut job teacher come in and start talking about uh, like CRT or like um, like sex in front of like younger kids and stuff like that, a parent can go before the school and have them sued. And it's something that can actually the state will support. Right. And this is just like absolutely adding fuel to the fire. Right. It's the, the main reason why I'm against the bill in the first because that it is just further isolating our educational apparatus. So w without state support, it's going to go nowhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, overall, I definitely think that the educational system and the lack of support, like you said, is a huge problem. I think the system was flawed in terms of how it kind of taught students and the fact that teachers are treated so poorly in terms of benefits, in terms of pay, in correspondence on how important their job is in influencing the youth moving forward and educating them 
in, in retro in uh in compare or if you compare that to their what their job is versus what they're given it's it's ridiculous it's actually it's terrible and the curriculums in so many of these institutions are so unfair to the teacher that it like it, it doesn't give them any room to really try to challenge these kids in a in terms of their mind no it's like get ready for tests that's all it is right now get ready for this next test so um i i definitely agree the education system is very flawed it take it would take a lot of local kind of advocacy to kind of fix a lot of these issues um and so my only thing my own, my next best kind of scenario is establishing like you said before an elective something kind of extracurricular something a group can establish to really say it's still a great place to meet different people in terms of schools that's probably the number one place to opt yeah. to eat to meet different people so having something there something um maybe funded by an organization to neutrally focus on conversation and thought could probably be the best case scenario would have to be the best case scenario so anything else you uh you want to add jonathan before we move to the final topic um you know so i i don't have a particularly strong opinion when it comes to like high school because i don't know much about it because i didn't i was homeschooled um so my perfect scenario was homeschool a bunch of people um and i'm sure uh liberal more liberal audiences will despise that <laughs> statement uh am i incorrect paul yeah, I I definitely got to push back on that one, John. <laughs> yeah, as I figured. Um, and the reason is this. Um, I fell in love with learning, right? Um, and it's because I was able to go at my own pace. And, and when I was a little bit older, when I was a sophomore in high school, I went to a career tech school. And this career tech school, um, because of bylaws and whatnot, does not have the same curriculum nor requirements as uh, a regular high school so like we didn't even like have final state exam final exams or anything like that um because of um the way the the way this school was funded so it didn't um it didn't have the same rules and regulations the same firm curricula and the teachers had a lot more freedom and because the teachers had a lot more freedom but also because i was in this area that i wanted to be in, i wanted to study criminal justice so I was passionate about it and I was passionate about learning in general because of my amazing, amazing mother and my amazing father, who was a professor, uh, and they taught me the beauty and the desire to learn. And I think in my one critique of education system, including college, is it doesn't do a good job um, supporting the value intrinsic in learning in education. Even uh, my fellow peers in college, a lot of times Quizlet takes their tests. They do not take their tests. They don't sit in and pay attention to the lectures. They're watching sports. They're watching playing video games. They're doing all these other things in the lecture because education itself is no longer seen as a virtue or a value. It is seen as simply a prerequisite to getting a job that you want to get. And so I don't think that the onus is on teachers. I, I uh, understand the plight of teachers in America, but half my family is now uh, teachers in middle school slash high school. I understand the plight, but I think one of the plights they have is, and it's an undervalued plight because 
um, we have this mentality of the consumer is always right and the students, we always have to be, the students are always right. I don't think that's true. I think the students are spoiled brats and they don't want to be there because they're told they only, they have to be there. They don't get to be there. Mm. I mean, I also think at the same time that the system put in place does not make it enjoyable at all. I, I, I would yeah. say middle school, high school, um, the way the way it was formatted, the only enjoyable, even though I'm was good at learning, I would get A's and all that stuff. And sometimes I would enjoy it, or, but it really heavily depended on how enjoyable the teacher made it. Exactly. And also the uh, and when I compare that to my college liberal arts school that I was just telling everybody about, their system was completely different. Like uh, probably not the same system as your tech school, but the fact that they went about education completely differently, they had something called one course at a time. So in that one to two months, you focus on one class, you go to one class, Wow. either one day, you either go to the class uh, once a day or twice a day, depending on what the class is. But most of it, once a day, you go to one class, you learn only that subject. For that mm. one to two months, and then maybe they'll give a final, maybe they'll give a midterm. It depends on this the class. This was in college. Yeah, it was called. It was a liberal arts college. Awesome. And uh, I think that was probably my favorite time in terms of being in education because the system put in place was so great. Now it was a private school, so they could afford it by because of their donors. Public education. I is yeah. a lost cause. I've bro. taken I'm just, 18 to 21 lost. credits every semester in college. So it's, uh, it, it's not like that at all, but that is similar to how the tech school was in some ways. Public school lost cause, bro. Lost cause. Uh, anything you want to add, Paul? I, yeah, I don't think it's a lost cause. It's the next bastion <laughs> of humanity. Okay. Like <laughs> you're going to, you're going you're gonna to see every single taxpayer dollar save every single child when they are enrolled in our school where they attack the teachers, you know, like it's going to be, it's going to be great. We're going to fund every single one. Of them. No, but in all seriousness though. Um, so I want to say a couple things. I wrote down some stuff. Um, Jonathan, I think that there is an idealization of education here. Right. And I think it's actually kind of distant from the reality in which education has always existed. Right. So the, the thing is, is that we were talking about how, like, you know, the kids are spoiled brats and how, like, um, you know, students are always like trying to just like get ahead on the tests and like uh, pass through. Right. Mm -hmm. I would argue that this has always been the case. Right. Now, granted, you know, back in the day, maybe um, like your 60s, 50s, like when we actually finally had public schooling uh, like uh, fully rolled out through the federal legislature. Um, there was significantly more motivation on behalf of the teacher and on behalf of the administration and on behalf of the communities that were involved in them to have better outcomes happen where there's more motivation to learn. Right. But that being said, I sincerely believe, and I, I think there is like some sort of empirics to back this up that this has been the case. Like uh, cheating has been something that has always existed. And even I would argue on the scale it is today, uh, is still pretty similar. We obviously have the internet, which, you know, like the Quizlet is like something that is uh, definitely bolstered the problem, right? But now it, AI it, too. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, AI too. I mean, that's easy. That's more detectable though, right? Like, but the big thing is, is like, uh, I'm sure you can actually probably agree on this, Jonathan. 
in a lot of like uh, criminology classes or in criminal justice classes, you have unmotivated professors that have the test answers literally on Quizlet, right? They do not regularly change their curriculum. They do not regularly get out there and get what needs to be done. And this is all because these people aren't just being paid enough, right? And furthermore, it's because these in these institutions aren't being paid enough to filter these people out when they are being paid enough, right? We, we have a big issue of funding and support for these institutions, right? Now, I want to say something, right? Like uh, with homeschooling, I, I have to push back against it like all the way, right? Stop right there. Yes, this is a little mini ad. Don't skip. Don't skip. All I want to tell you right now is that at the end of the day, when it comes down to all the discussions I want to have, I want to be able to communicate with you, the audience. I want to be able to relay a message and receive a message from everyone and try to come up with these great solutions that I keep on talking about. So if you want to be part of the community, make sure you go to the website and sign up for not only the email list so you can get weekly emails from me for the podcast episode, informational sessions, all that great stuff, but also sign up to go on my Discord so you can be part of the discussions, debates on my live streams. So be sure to go to the website, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com and go to the email list, sign up and go to the Discord and join the server. Now back to the episode. I'm not someone that can fully trust uh, having more and more children I kind of like at the whims of like their parents in terms of their education. It works for some, right? And it gets burned by others, right? Social development can work for some and it can't work for others. I say this as someone that had negative social development. I was sent to a military school when I was a kid, right? Uh, but that being said, these are still things that uh, need to have public education because it combines a really adequate social uh, platform by which people can interact with one another. And then furthermore, at the very least, a standardized education system by which they can learn through, all of which can be supported through the financing that's needed. Now, I can agree with conservatives in the sense that maybe I would send my kid to private school, or maybe I would send my kid to a charter school, or maybe I would homeschool my kid because of the negative uh, presence of these schools right now. But to exist in eternity, right, I would always support the public school option. Just currently now, I have to say, sure, I get it, right? The public schools aren't doing too well. But uh, fundamentally, on a fundamental level, I truly believe in the ability to have education that can be uh, financed by the public and then furthermore be dictated by the public and what, uh, what is necessarily taught what is uh, necessarily um, sought after in terms of the goals of that institution, because as a or as a republic uh, by which we are, uh, it should be up to the people to make those decisions through their but representatives. They want to homeschool? Uh, no, absolutely not. That's the one stipulation. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, no. Uh, it, I, this I, is in I, the I, context of education for public schooling, right? But not for the specific institution of the prime, uh, the private parent, right? I'm just wholesalely against it because of the risk associated with it, which I- So I one thing I will I push back as someone who did homeschool, yeah. one of the things that we had to do, uh, it's it's not simply the whims of the parents, right? So when I was homeschooled- Meet state expectations. I had, right? I had a full curriculum that yeah. we purchased from a, a licensed and uh, approved company 
and we did have to meet set expectations. I simply got to do it. Uh, so one of the reasons I'm so far ahead in, in college is because my parents didn't want to buy two curriculums. So I simply did my brother's curriculum. So I was always two or three years ahead of everything. Um, and But I still got to go at my own pace. I still met all of the state board requirements, still did all of that. I just got to do it at my own pace. I got to fall in love with the process of learning. And one of the things you brought up is, um, you know, cheating has always happened, right? Doesn't make cheating right. I don't care if the professor is lazy and puts the same things, doesn't give someone the right to cheat, right? Um, so I think the onus is still on the students. Uh, I, I sympathize for the plight of underpaid uh, uh, teachers. Uh, I don't think professors are, are underpaid uh, wholesale. Uh, I think m many of them um, live very, very good lives. Um, for the middle class, they get good salaries, at least the place that I'm at. I can't attest to every place, but I don't necessarily care um, if the professors are, are lazy. That doesn't give you the right to therefore look up the answers on Quizlet and still cheat. So you still you should still have to because the, the purpose of a college, first and foremost, is you're paying for that. I am paying thousands of dollars to get an education, right? I can, once again, I will cede your point, and yeah, the professors are being lazy, but I still have a duty and obligation because I'm putting my money where my mouth is to say I want to get as much from this as possible. So what I'm not going to do is sit on video games or watch um, whatever sports thing is currently on during the class time. I want to be sitting there. The onus is still on me to get the education I'm paying for. The professors are still doing what they're doing, and some could do it better, some do it worse. But I still, just because the professors are being lazy and putting their answers the same, doesn't mean that I don't have a responsibility to do my half of the education process as well. So I'll, real quick, I, I want to ask one thing for Jonathan, and then I want to ask like a, a f counter question that I'm curious if you can answer. And then I'll let Paul respond, and then we'll move on to the final topic. So... <laughs> Uh, so in terms of my first question is more of a personal one. Is there a social standard that needs to be met for homeschool as well? Or is it purely just they only care about the curriculum? Um, so you, are you asking, is there um, a social requirement as well that um, homeschoolers would need to have? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think so. Um, there's this misconception a lot of... Uh, somewhat stereotype right um which we're told are bad but stereotypes come from somewhere uh so i certainly know some homeschoolers that are kind of awkward i also know a lot of public schoolers that are very awkward as well uh, i don't think there should be a social standard um because um as long as you're functioning and you're able to function in this society then that is the standard right if you can function in society then you've met the social standard quick follow-up question because i'm now i'm curious so I don't know if this is true, but I got it from anime, so I'm going to ask it anyway. So in Japan, um, I feel like there's some institutions that demand students to do an extracurricular activity. Um, and inherently, I don't know if I would be against, not for, for it or against it. I feel like it would probably be a good idea. But So with that said, do you believe that a student should have to do an extracurricular activity? And if that's the case, if you do... Or you think, you know, maybe, or or let's say if you do, do you think that the homeschooler will also have to do extracurricular activity? Or that they um, 
So I don't think uh, it should be a, a state requirement um, because I don't think um, that, I mean, primarily I am one of these people that believe the family has an obligation to get their children a good education. Um, if that be in public school, private school, or homeschool, whatever it is, I fundamentally believe that that goes back to the parents who are responsible for the raising of the children because they're responsible for raising children before God, not man. Um, and so however they deem that fit uh, should be. That said, I think it is totally within the parents' rights to mandate that there be an extracurricular. I was not allowed to not be an extracurricular. It either had to be some kind of music, whether it be in band or otherwise, or I had to be in some kind of club or in sports. I did sports. I did martial arts. I did uh, many other things. I wrote books on the side. So I by my parents to do extracurriculars. When it comes to the side of socializing, we also had a co-op, right? So for many years, uh, it wasn't just my family that homeschooled, but it was several families that would get together and homeschool together. And then later on, it was through a more formalized process. Um, so I got plenty of socializing. I also got to live in other countries, which uh, many of my peers in the public school sector did not get to do. And that is something that I am beyond blessed and privileged to have been able to do. I hope that I never take that for granted. But it always kind of irks me a little bit when people say, well, why are you not like some weird kid that's socially stunted? It's like, well, I lived a very blessed and fortunate life, and I got to live in another country. Um, some homeschoolers don't have that same journey that I did. Um, but I still think, as a whole, I know several homeschoolers who go to BG, uh, and we are all in the top of our classes. In, in different respective fields, every time I meet a homeschooler, uh, we were always in the top echelon of our classes, and I think that's because we were able to fall in love with learning at our own pace. Not true for everyone, but that's anecdotal, so take for it what you will. But in my experience, many of the homeschoolers that I know, um, especially at Penna, Penna loved the homeschoolers. All the teachers were thrilled that I was a homeschooler because I was – I don't want to just keep praising myself here because I'm – I don't consider nah, myself especially smart. Homeschoolers but, were just so smart. Yeah. yeah, boom. Um, but yeah, they all I was in the top of almost all of my classes. And it's not because I'm smart, it's because I like learning. I respect it. And my follow-up question is uh how exactly are you going to kind of because all right, so I kind of want to preface this by saying this. For I think me and Paul, I think we kind of focused on okay, teachers, they need to be, you know, uh compensated way better. And Paul even added the extra caveat, if they are compensated better, we can weed out the bads teachers. So compensation needs to be way better. I also believe that the education system needs to be reformatted and be more efficient. So those those are two prongs to make the education system better. One thing that you're kind of bringing up is that the students should be, it's the students' accountability and them wanting to learn. Okay, we have tangible things that we can actually put in place. I don't know how you force students to want to learn though. Exactly. So I'm yeah. curious on how, how you would go about that. Great question. Um, so homeschool them. Um, no, that's, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, only half though, right? So I think the education process has to start in the home, right? One of the reasons that um, I like to learn is because my dad likes to learn and my mom likes to learn, right? And this is something that you necessarily can't standardize. Um, 
one of the things you can do though is and i think they are doing it now with these kind of uh facilitated learning groups that the, that you can have or uh people with special needs they go at slower paces well people uh, people's brains develop and uh, a lot of science has shown one of the best ways to create good readers uh is to have parents that read and so uh and reading is is highly correlated and your literacy is highly correlated with educational outcomes and things like that but my dad in his room, there's books all over my house. In his office space, he's got four shelves on all four walls filled with books. I always saw my parents reading, right? And one of the things that uh, can uh, create that, pre and every kid likes to read inherently, right? Every kid loves to go to the library and grab the book. Somewhere along the lines, they're taught that reading is lame, reading is for losers. Um, and when that process starts to happen is when the educational system kind of falls off a little bit. And so if we can mitigate that where we can, but also work with the students in middle school, I think like you guys both, I believe, brought up the point of standardized testing is, is the bane of educational existence. When you're doing things simply just to pass a test, that's when education just starts to totally collapse and decay. Education is not about testing. Right, we don't teach in schools any things that really matter. I never never taught to uh, do a checkbook or or how to cook or how to clean or or how to do a lot of things or understanding my tax system. Like we're not taught a lot of things that are actually used for life. Um, but AP calculus, we, though. But yeah, important. but right, exactly, exactly. Algebra three is a fundament of school. Like, no, no, I'm going into criminal justice. Why do I need to do? Like, so working with the students, like Australia actually has a great, great education system where you get to essentially pick your track like your sophomore year. And so if you are higher in interest in this rate, then they will uh, tailor the back end of your high school. And if you want to go to college, they'll even tailor it to feed into your college career. And so they begin to tailor it right at the high school level about what kind of things you're interested in, what you like. And you get to take more classes that way. Penna got to do the same sort of thing as that. And that's beautiful. So working with what the students are interested in is that's what keeps the passion for learning alive because people actually like to learn. It's just somewhere along the line with this modern education system that we have, the students are squashed out as well. And I still, that kind of sounded a little bit like your arguments and because you guys are also right on this issue as well. But what it can't be is there will be a point where the students still, even if they do like it, because we have these desires that are disordered, is they were still sometimes want to prefer to play video games in class. And you shouldn't have that. You should, no, sorry, laptop. Like, I don't think laptops should actually be in, in, allowed in, in lecture halls and classes. Like, you write, take notes by paper um, because you'll be more engaged, you'll be more focused, and you won't even have the temptation um, to get on there. Um, there'll still be desires and that's when the students have to take responsibility and say, no, against uh, my baser instincts, I'm going to take this time and actually learn. So there's well, still some but, onus on the students. But isn't the problem like the, the basis by which we actually construct um, like policy for students, uh, curriculum and, and whatnot is through accommodating for factors by which we don't actually invoke personal responsibility, right? Like, for example, we examine it as something that will happen in the event of a failure of the education system. For example, if the teacher is failing 
in uh, their ability to properly teach these students, then there is a higher likelihood of there to be cheating in the class, right? So thus we must encourage the teacher through a better financing and then after better financing through things like standardized testing to see where that teacher is particularly, then we can uh, clearly see, uh, you know, like a decrease in that type of cheating, right? Mm. Cheating, che think of it like this, right? It's sort of like, um, it's sort of like crime and like police coverage, right? Uh, crime happens in areas uh, with like uh, lower police coverage or more sparsed out police coverage in most cases. These might be the most policed areas, but they still have the least amount of uh, police per block, right? Similarly with teaching, if we have a lot of bad teachers and people that can't get the job done, right? Because that they are unmotivated to actually get into the job and uh, just want to collect a paycheck or something like that then we can clearly see that this stuff might appear not to be working. But if we finance it, then we can see it actually work and we can have the standardized testing corroborate it, right? The reason why standardized testing doesn't work right now or necessarily is because the schools have no actual real money coming into them and the federal and state legislatures are not supporting these people. Isn't that something that we can agree on? Like, I, I'm not really sure, certain why we should invoke personal responsibility whenever we do try to do these things we see that there is a consistent failure that is applied right the reason why we can see it exercised more in private schools and the reason why we can see it exercised more in homeschools is because the amount of authority that is dispatched upon these students is far greater the amount of surveillance that a, a teacher in these areas can uh, enact or the amount of guidance they can act is far greater because of the lower uh, populations or because of the more hands-on learning these are things that public schools aren't going to have the resources to. So why should we opt for the personal responsibility? That's my question to you, Jonathan. Um, because personal responsibility is important. One, one thing I would want to add to, I, I agree with Jonathan, personal, personal responsibility is important, is one thing I want to say is I don't necessarily think that we have to look at it as different uh, counter solutions. So what I mean by that is, I feel like you can attack this on a three-pronged strategy. One, at the home, in terms of establishing the proper values for your kids. And you can do that by establishing the essence and importance of learning. Two, at this education, in terms of the teachers, financing them properly, compensating them properly. Um, so, you know, they are treated better and do a better job. And three, for me personally, in terms of, changing the education system so it's more efficient for not only the students but also the teachers and developing the students mind so i feel like all three solutions can be kind of corresponded together to be very efficient overall in terms of developing the the child's mind do you disagree um, that's you paul i'm sorry you cut out for me can you say it one more time just like the general context so my thing is, I feel like all three, all the things that we mentioned can be kind of, uh, kind of, uh, be used in unison in a sense, in the sense that, you know, teaching values at the home, uh, compensating teachers better and creating a more efficient education system. I feel like all three of those things can be all very important overall in terms of education. So they don't really have to kind of counter each other. Yeah, I think I would uh, agree, but I would say just with a caveat, 
uh, within the reins of personal responsibility. That is the job of the parent and the parent alone, right? I don't believe that uh, the, it's the job of the state to enforce some uh, requiem of, uh, or sorry, not requiem, uh, some like standardization of personal responsibility, because I feel as if every single time we've tried to teach it through the curriculum, it often leads to uh, nowhere, right? If anything, uh, the thing that we necess- really do need here is to support parents and parents to support the schools and so that the educators can educate the children and then the parents could do the job of like giving their children the know-how, the street knowledge and things that they need to know at home. But I don't necessarily see how it's the job of our public schooling system to teach these things. I can see maybe like a financial education class, home economics, right? But I can't see anything beyond that because to put that into curriculum is very, very difficult. And furthermore, to actually have children compelled by it is even harder, right? Especially considering the drought in teaching we have now. I'm sure Jonathan could probably agree with me on that with, with his I would. family being. I yeah, would, I would totally agree that uh, parents have to teach personal responsibility one thing if you don't mind Rodell, I, I would like to ask paul a question oh, um so i think you would agree that uh teachers are overworked right yeah so uh there, there's too many uh students per classroom right um yeah yeah i would yeah. say so so would it not also make economic sense if teachers or if parents wanted to teach their kids to pull their kids out of public school and to homeschool them, would that not alleviate a lot of the pressure from teachers that are overworked, underpaid with too many students per classroom? And absolutely, that yeah, way, absolutely that way, not. no, no. Why, why doesn't that make sense? Because that we, we already have systems to like accommodate for students that actually find themselves, uh, it being harder to learn in these environments. We have IEPs and 504s that step forward to give these children these resources. The only problem is right now, currently, we don't have enough uh, classroom size to actually facilitate it. However, with the ideas that I've mentioned right now, right, the notion would be that we build these schools bigger so we can accommodate for students that can't handle these larger classroom sizes and allowing them to have or some form of take isolation. Them out of school, right? I don't believe Instead that. Of no, pouring yeah. in a bunch of money to try to make schools bigger. That would work the same no, way. No, I, I don't think so. I'm not. I'm not really quick. So, I, I really quick. I, I'm not interested in the notion of leaving it up to private actors to engage even if there's state curriculum which is the standard like you correctly mentioned with homeschooling i do not trust private actors to enact consistency on this right i do not trust them to be people that uh, can reliably do this and furthermore just for the socialization factor i don't believe it to be a constant right i know plenty of people if we're going to be going by anecdotes right I know plenty of people that went through it and had the negative effects as well. And that's something that I'm not necessarily willing to let happen to the future of American children, right? Granted, this is, could be said for public schools too, but at least with public schooling, you have the ability to finance it more, to enact more regulations upon it, and the electorate can actually exercise more control over it. But I do not believe parents should have, like, I'll even say it, right? This is probably where I become the radical have that right to educate their children, right? I believe that that thing is supposed to be up to private schools, uh, charter schools, and public schools alone, right? And that's the only circumstances by which they should operate. So why is private schools allowed if often it is the uh, parents who are deciding some of those 
what is being taught there. They're the ones who are often funding it, uh, large donors of graduates of those private schools. Why are private schools allowed? Because private schools can see significantly more oversight than that of the homeschool. The homeschool in the way we like or the way the I understand overseeing a lot of the state oversees the curriculum that is dispatched. The, the state does not oversee the overall socialization and the generalized education that's being dispatched. Right. You don't see like uh, like you'll see test scores, for example, you'll see a Biden's by protocol, but you can't see general like uh, you won't see general inspection of the premises, for example, in that execution of teaching. And to me, that is too big of a risk to put American children through the hoops on that one. Right. With a private school, you can have active inspection throughout them, which happens right in the state of Florida. We have Florida inspectors that come through these places every month. But for homeschoolers, it's uh, few and far between. For example, the average inspection rate, I think, in the state of Florida for homeschoolers to actually see with uh, physical personnel is something of like once a year or maybe even more. Right. I don't know if you ever had physical inspectors come into your home to to uh, observe your learning environment, but it's something that should happen at the bare minimum with homeschoolers. Uh, but largely, it just shouldn't be something that exists. Right. I want something that for the foundation has significantly more oversight from multiple individuals that can assess these situations rather than having to risk children being at home with their parents and may possibly being in something like an abusive situation, a neglectful situation, or just an uh, inadequate situation in that educating, right? That's my general problem with it. Okay. So I want to say this. Um, and then for we'll the question, on. by the way. I want to say this before we move on. Great conversation. Great conversation, even, even though they disagreed. Um, I will say this. In terms of homeschooling, I would say... And when we're talking about these big classes, classrooms where there's a lot of students, typically in these situations, you know, these are not going to be uh, educational institutions that is, uh, in terms of the demographic, uh, wealthy in any way. For the most part, they're probably going to be in the lower, lower middle or even poor. So to the realism of them homeschooling and taking their kid out and homeschooling is probably not realistic at the end of the day. There are probably some exceptions that can do that, but I probably would say it probably is not realistic, especially for those who have maybe even one parent in the home and they're working all day. They just can't. They don't have the time or resources to educate their student. So I would say in in those situations, probably homeschooling in those scenarios probably is not that realistic um, in comparison to in comparison to uh, financing these institutions and compensating the teachers better. Uh, so I'm just really talking about the realism aspect of that situation, but I will say, you know, I don't, I don't dismiss the, the, uh, efficiency of homeschooling and the potential it has. I feel like more, you probably could even argue that if it's done perfectly, you could probably argue that a perfectly taught homeschool student probably reaches higher peaks than a perfectly taught public school student. And I'm talking about public education, not private education or charter schools. So I feel like that argument probably can be made. And that's strictly due to the aspect that it's a personal educational, you know, environment where it's like one on one or one on two, depending on if you have siblings. And those scenarios at the end of the day will always be better in terms of learning. Um, but overall, ideally, I probably would prefer that they go to an, ed an institution to get their education, because I do think that the socialization aspect is very important for me. 
uh, as well as as it looks like Paul is uh, indicating as well. So that's where I come from. But you know, I do see the validity of both arguments. I think all of us can, at the very least, agree our current public education system is extremely extreme. Oh, absolutely. Bad. Yeah. I mean, like that. That should be a bipartisan uh, <laughs> a thing that does exist on the very few, right? Yeah. So it's, and it's we got to fix it. Agreed. Fix it. We got to fix that. Um, so let's go into the last topic of discussion, and it kind of goes in hand in hand with the kind of another potential reason why a lot of these students are not caring about learning, not caring about education, and that's due to technology, more specifically social media, right? So uh, in terms of social media and its impact in political discourse, it's it's wide encompassing. We all know this. It's and. For the most part, I think you probably can argue that it's probably done more harm than good in terms of proper political discourse. What do y'all think? I would agree with that wholeheartedly. It is certainly done more ill than good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think... Uh, uh, go for oh, it. Go ahead. Uh all right, so to to weird to kind of talk so we don't have that weird kind of silence right there. Um, I I mean I agree as well. I think it's done more harm than good, and that's probably due to a lot of the things we we already said in terms of the um, they're getting fed a lot of kind of things to think, a lot of ideologies to think to kind of indoctrinate themselves into whatever ideology they want to believe in, and. In those situations, the thing about social media compared to like an educational scenario where it's like a Socratic situation that I kind of talked about earlier is that you can kind of embed yourself in these edges of social media where it's an echo chamber. And yeah. that's probably one of the most problematic things about social media. I personally have talked to someone in a podcast episode before in terms of Twitter being a public square and you know, I think the importance of social media should be the ability to interact with different people, not being finding a social media or a subreddit is like and thinking only one way. I don't think that's productive. I don't think that's a good thing overall. So I think ideas need to be challenged. So with the fact that, you know, we're having these situations where it's becoming an echo chamber. I think Paul said it earlier today that people are getting pushed more and more to the radicals, more and more to the extremes that overall this doesn't really help uh political discourse and you know it doesn't really help kind of find any potential solutions either i think oh go ahead oh so i think one of the i totally agree with that but i don't necessarily think that uh uh, especially something like twitter is going to be the solution or or most most social media is going to be the solution to that either and the reason is this right when you're caught up in these echo chambers, right, uh, you're told how people are going to behave. And especially a platform like Twitter, I think it's getting better with uh, some of the things that Elon's done, like particularly allowing longer tweets. Uh, so he uh, bumped up the number, and any any particular CEO of Twitter could have done that. Uh, he just happened to be the one to do it. But when you have a, a context like social media, the only thing that you can do is, is the short extreme bursts, right? So you have to make your point as essentially belligerently as possible. And for somebody of the opposite spectrum, when they see that, they're like, ah, see, I knew they were going to be crazy. 
I knew they were going to take this extreme position. And that actually creates a confirmation bias. And it actually just pushes you further. So I think the best thing to do uh, is have conversations like we're having right now, long form in person with nuanced abilities to say, you know what, I agree with this, not this. I agree with that, not this. And I get to see your point, but this, this is the thing that's going to help that divide. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the attention span to sit down and listen to a, a two and a half or, or however long we've gone podcast. And that's very unfortunate. I think we should incentivize something more like this instead of discourse. Because, uh, I mean, it's hard to read sarcasm on tweets. There's several accounts that I follow uh, who are very, like, satirical. But unless you've listened to their podcasts and know how satirical they are, when you read their tweets, it doesn't come off that way. It just comes off as belligerent. Um, and so even when it comes to these kind of more nuanced perspectives, a lot of times it just gets lost over text. Like, I can't tell you how many times I got in trouble with the lady because you text something and like, oh, I didn't read it that way. Well, I meant <laughs> yeah. it that way. Like, thank God for emojis at some point. But we don't really have that kind of level of nuanced and, and tonal expression when it comes to something like social media. I think, um, I mean, you know, big government guy here. Uh, these platforms just need to be like grossly regulated. <laughs> like it's, it's just like getting like out of control. Like uh, I don't really care about the Twitter stuff. I'm not one of these liberals that like uh, bitches and moans about how Elon's running the joint. Right. I think that's like uh, bizarre for the most part. But what I will say is, I mean, uh, these places literally are like almost destroying our country, dude. Like it's like absolutely had a profound effect upon how people think and associate with each other, like I mentioned earlier. Right? So you don't yeah. agree with the aspect of social medias being able to create specific social medias for their specific ideology? You don't agree with that? No, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm almost against it wholesale. Yeah, like, uh, I guess this might be me being like a little bit of an autocrat here, but um, I really don't see much good in these things anymore. I think that, you know, it's great to see your kid's picture from like while they're living over in Greece or whatever, but like it, it I think that the negatives just far outweigh the the goods. Um, obviously, this is not a perfect world, so I can't get rid of it just in a dime. So the regulation I would want to see at the very most is some form of like more stricter moderation of extremes. And possibly, you know, Jonathan and I will probably disagree on this uh, in reference to the First Amendment, uh, takedowns of like radicals on these things uh, even more than they already are existing. Mm, that is a debate. That is yeah, 100% a debate. 100%. 100%. Like uh, the, the I'm, presence. I'm sorry, I want to I yeah. hear what you said, Bo, because you kind of cut out for a second on me there. You said take down. Some of the more radical you said i would disagree with you i i think so i mean like i so like i am presupposing some conservative stuff here right and i apologize for the assumption uh, i don't know how you feel about it but let's say for example let's break some bread here right let's say we cut out like the marxist leninist communist okay and in exchange we also get to cut out like the the neo-fascists and stuff like that how does that sound so I am not one of these conservatives. God bless like, you, man. It's like oh, free speech for anything. But I think the um, I think we had very strict speech laws in this nation for years, and I don't think uh, the First Amendment grants you the rights to to be brash and and, and foolish. Um, I think we might we might disagree a little bit on what's brash or foolish, 
but at wholesale i'm not one of these people that uh thinks that the first amendment guarantees you the right to say anything however you want whenever you want wherever you want i think like obscenity laws i think we should uh, have things like that once again um so i think we actually would agree on some aspects of that yeah like to me like the, the big issue i don't like right is um how like a lot of these radical groups are starting to um like bring more people in i think this is actually uh more kind of uh in tune with like the far right in terms of their like social media presence and how they bring in a lot more older people nowadays but for younger people you still see like um you know like uh, these like far communist groups that like get involved you could like have like your I don't know if you want to call them an organization. I just see them as like kind of like a mass mob of uh, types, but like you're like Antifa types that kind of come around and mobilize to these things. Uh, yeah. th these are people that just don't belong on the platform at all. Um, and I, I believe that they really do poison the well. My, my big yeah. issue with the, the, the moderation and the reason why uh, I would lean more towards open debate and things like this is because a lot of these, uh, facilities, a lot of these organizations such as uh, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, they're owned by patently liberal people. And so when it comes to um, regulating that, it, it tends to be, and you might disagree with me, and that's, that's totally fine, it tends to be the restrictions lean more on the conservative side, and it's the conservative voices that kind of get banned and, and shut out. Um, and I will totally full disclosure, right? Obviously, I follow more uh, conservative people, mm -hmm. um, so they're the ones that I hear about when they get removed from YouTube, yeah, from Facebook. Uh, I don't know if uh, the a lot of liberals also got banned off Twitter during the twenty twenty election, or or uh, off Instagram, or but it, it seems to me, so it appears to me the way that I perceive it, it tends to be more conservative people that end up off of the platform. Well, I, so I think there's like some reason. So like, I'll say uh, there were plenty of like left wing people that would get banned off of like Twitter, for example, pre Elon for uh, a while. Like you had like Marxist Leninist types that would like celebrate the killing of Tiananmen Square protesters. Oh, very nice. Uh, yeah. You know, like the just scum uh, that would, uh, celebrate this type of stuff or like a, a praise the hall of more or praise the camera rouge. Yeah. Like that kind of get executed. Um, but I will say like in terms of growth and I, I, I hope you can agree with me here at least online in terms of like political groups and um, how do I put it? Air, like um, political groups that exert force, they kind of do have more of a tendency to exist on the right and organize through these. Give platforms. an example. Yeah. So like, I would say like the proud boys is like a really great example. So before they were actually banned, um, they used Twitter as well as I think discord for a very long time to mobilize themselves until the Charlottesville thing had happened, which had caused like a great crackdown. Now, when I'm talking about like the scale of these things, this isn't to delineate or like uh, kind of just like shoot down the left wing groups, right? Because they obviously exist. But in terms of scale and I think for potential of violence, uh, armaments and um, even like professionality, these uh, far right groups are significantly, first of all, more abundant 
and um, they are usually the ones to get taken down more. Now, if we want to shift towards the layman, we have like like election deniers and uh, we have like the COVID stuff, right? These are people that were obviously more overregulated by social media, like without a doubt, uh, than liberal parties, right? Like I can like fully admit that. With that said, I do want to say this. Um, a lot of you, you, there could be an argument made from the right, and we don't have to get into the intricacies of this, but I want to kind of preface, I want to say this to kind of, kind of establish a potential understanding from someone maybe from the right is some they do see other things as far left and radical that probably a lot of people on the left and liberal don't deem nearly don't deem as radical for example like you mentioned some and i think a lot of people would agree but you know a, a person on the right would say you know regarding trans stuff and and, tra and kids and trans issues with kids and lgbtq stuff um certain things can be they would deem far left radical and the consensus probably in the general public is that it's not radical so in that situation um when it kind of when violence is something that's kind of talked about i feel like we all can agree yeah that's probably not good for the platform but when it's ideological based when it's purely just ideology and i, I don't have stats to confirm or deny so i'm just going to ask a question do you feel like at the very least before elon do you feel like in terms of just pure ideology do you feel like there was any side that was getting treated worse than the other yeah, I definitely think the right was uh, treated with uh, significantly more moderation. I don't think that is uh, deniable at all. No. Okay. Yeah, I just yeah. wanted to ask the question. No. About... Yeah, like, like I, I'm, I'm very honest about this thing, right? Like, uh, maybe if I was on like a podium in front of my base, I probably wouldn't say that out loud, right? <laughs> but like amongst, you, amongst you guys, of course, like uh, the big thing to note is just you know simply that it is a reality, right? This is like something that does actually kind of exist. Um, that being said, uh, I will say like, you know, I did, I did, I do side with the moderation, for example, of the skepticism of the election. Um, I do side with the moderation for that of the vaccines, right? Uh, do I think these things do better for society itself, uh, through moderating it? Um, maybe for like the discourse? No, because when you censor these voices, it can actually drive them to further radicalization. But I think the number one idea that a lot of these social media companies kind of had was uh, first off, you know, obeying by their advertisers that uh, wanted them to, you know, enact these measures. And then number two, uh, if there was some sort of uh, civil, like, what's the word for it? Civil care and like, hey, you know, we got to get this done. If uh, I think that there was some sort of care in that, you know, more people should get the vaccine and less people die, right? And I think that that was a perfectly fine decision to moderate on. With the election, I absolutely believe it, right? I uh, wholesalely think that um, that is not a thing that should pr uh, proliferate itself on social media whatsoever. I think that that's something that needs to be snuffed out through at least the private companies. Uh, and it should be only uh, spread verbally on the phone or on television, right? But in these spaces right now, like this election denial stuff has gone absolutely out of control. And I'm fully on the side of these social media companies to censor these voices. It's something that should not exist whatsoever. So I, I do want to kind of step away from the content moderation talking point uh, because I want that should, probably should be an episode in itself. What we deem, oh, the First Amendment 
what it protects, what content should be on social media. I feel like that's a whole podcast. That would be a very, very good debate, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about it as um, too, of course. But my thing in kind of content moderation is definitely a potential solution. Finding that line is, like I said, a future talking point, what that line is. But I do think Jonathan did bring up a great thing in terms of having more content creators or more people on social media being willing or absorbing, you know, these type of conversations in terms of, you know, learning about these different viewpoints, seeing how people interact, even though they disagree and how you can be similar. And when you're at re, uh, interacting with someone who you disagree with, you know, seeing that in front of you can really kind of shed a, a sense of imagery of how you should be in terms of political discourse or and just general conversation for the most part. Um, in terms of social media, I'm going to focus on Twitter because I feel like Twitter is like the go-to social media now, now at the end of the day, uh, in terms of conversation. Uh, so with that said, are there things in Twitter that they can implement? I know Twitter space is a thing. I feel like that could possibly be helpful, but are there other things that Twitter can implement into their social media platform to kind of incentivize more conversation, incentivize more discourse? And I know you brought up increasing the character limit, and that definitely could be something, but is, is there anything that... Any other thing that you guys have in mind that could be helpful as well? I think those two things really, really help do the trick, uh, allowing the the actual verbal conversation and allowing the greater character limits. I think the community notes are funny. Uh, I don't know. Oh, really. Yes, they're yeah. pretty good, actually. Yeah. I, don't lie. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Does anyone actually hear like John? Do you know how they work by any chance? Because like I have no idea. How I think you, you have to have them. a paid account to be able to do it. Okay, that makes sense. was what I understand. A lot of the things, which is great, because Twitter was headed for total bankruptcy, and so him creating these subscription things. Uh, but I think a lot of the cooler features you have to have the paid accounts to do. Which is very fair. Also, on with these paid accounts, you can upload like two hour podcasts on them as well. Correct. So they giving a lot of, you know, more tools and resources for them and incentivizing it pretty well as well. The community nuts, I, I think they're a great touch, uh, especially with like these different articles and go like, bro, what is going on? Then I see the community nuts, I was like, hmm, interesting. Okay. So, yeah. you know, it could be humorous or it could be informative depending on who you're asking. Um, other than that, I mean, if Twitter is, if Elon stay even though i don't agree with the aspect that elon makes his political idea political viewpoints known on twitter i don't agree with that being the ceo um regardless if twitter keep kind of really represents itself as a public square properly in allowing these different voices being heard and allowing these different discourse do you think by twitter really establishing that mark and increasing put potentially increasing even more in popularity. Do you think that would be a good gateway to other social media platforms and how to be? I, I, think I hope Elon good... just buys them all. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I think the good gateway, I guess this is like me being the pessimist. I think the good gateway is the fact that Twitter probably is going to actually die. It's not doing so well on market right now. Um, Twitter blue hasn't generated enough money as far as I know. 
But if wouldn't that be have the opposite effect? If Twitter dies, then people probably just create more social media platforms for specific ideologies. No, I, I think that they're gonna. There's just gonna be like another market actor that comes out to mirror that of Twitter. I I think that obviously, like you know, you're gonna have your truth socials out there, right? But like, uh, there's still gonna be some sort of like kind of concerted area that obviously will probably have like a slightly liberal bend to it. Right. At least like through the corporate ownership, but it's still going to be something that like exists. Right. Like even underneath, I think it was a uh, Dorsey. Was he the guy that used to own uh, Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Like underneath Dorsey, like we can all agree. It was like a, like a liberal slash slightly liberal platform, especially in its early days. Right. Like where it was basically fucking anything goes. Same thing could be said for Reddit. I mean, does anyone here remember our slash fat people hate? Like it was like a real thing, right? <laughs> so, That's so crazy. yeah, I've never used. I can. I don't even think I have a Reddit account. I've yeah, so I just found out about this. I was reading a New York Times article. I like used it briefly when I was in high school, but that's about it. But I found out that it was just not moderated at all. So I think I that wouldn't these be are, surprised. Oh, yeah. And I think that these are things that are going to kind of develop in Twitter's absence unless like, you know, the site gets just like requisitioned by someone else and like just downsizes itself like uh, tenfold. But um, I, I trust in the market to produce something. Right. I guess that's the uh, something that's surprising for me to say. But I do I, think that it is going to come out. I don't know, because like you there's a perfect kind of example of the situation going on right now with Twitch, Kick and Rumble. So Twitch is obviously always lean left in terms of how they moderated specifically. I'm not talking about ideology, but based on their moderation, people are advertisers. Yeah. Yeah. So they always lean left. Um, but it's for a lot of people. Now they're switching over to kick and kick is completely different in terms of their moderation. They're way more open. Um, sure. They have moder certain moderation, but they kind of allow things to kind of go for the most part in comparison to Twitch. So, the the moment they saw Twitch, it's like, all right, that you guys are doing this. I'm gonna just go the opposite direction and do something different. And now they're just taking. I don't know if Kick will survive. To be fair, I don't know if that will be if well, we survive you, the test of time. Yeah. But now they're because of now their promise of hourly wage. Now due to getting all these influencers like XQC, Aiden Ross, um, Destiny, and. And Rumble too, but that Rumble is more of a conservative platform, to be fair. Um, so with that situation, they saw what Twitch is doing and with the opposite direction. So if they succeed, then the market says, okay, just do the opposite of what what the status quo was. The, the, the question is, though, how long are these things going to like uh, at, like be this way, right? Like I'm sure we can all yeah, agree sure here that yeah. they, they bend, they're going to have to bend the knee to advertisers like eventually. Uh, Kick is shelling out large amounts of money right now. Yeah um and it's gonna need to pay that back uh with the the revenue gained through streams and that's gonna come through the advertising money right and advertisers whatever deal they have right now they're gonna need more to grow and it's gonna be the same thing that happened with twitch like i don't know if you remember the older twitch days but like you could you used to be able to have like a gun out on stream and like uh you know like down a beer or something like that. Now, God forbid in this fucking American country you can't do it anymore on stream. Like I mean it's like a nightmare. Yeah, yeah that's a great point because at the end of the day, um, whether you agree with it or not, the 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 influence of ESG and CEI scores 
is is there and a lot oh, of yeah. them have a huge influence on all the all the businesses that you could think about so with what paul said if kick wants advertisers maybe they would they could go rumble route and just for, look for a conservative advertiser sure but even then with that stuff like the, the big issue rumble's going to have like as a platform it's the same thing that truth social is running into right like uh the only advertisers that they can get are usually conservative advertisers or that of like east asian companies right that like uh yeah. deal in advertising uh otherwise it's very difficult and the problem is is that these these companies themselves are kind of like faltering with some of the struggles the GOP is going through right now. And that hurts these, uh, these like platforms to actually develop themselves. Right. Especially if they lose like big pieces of talent, like rumble right now is probably going to lose, uh, Andrew Tate regarding the recent, uh, and uh, not, not indictment. Yeah. The indictment that happened. So, yeah. so I know Elon, Elon said this, I don't, I have to remember the exact words, but he wanted to, his initial proposal way back in the day before he actually acquired Twitter is to turn Twitter into a platform where it's somewhat like owned by the people. I for exact forgot exactly his words, but in that, in that sense, you know, it's, if it's owned by the people, not, not owned by like, you know, a corporation or stakeholders. Do you think that if a social media platform is ran that way, the the general premise the the kinks we could talk about at a different time but the general premise do you think that would be better overall for uh I political do. discourse i think so. yeah i think so too all right elon make good on your promise make twitter yeah. allow twitter to be owned by the people and then it'll be the perfect public square right mm. perfect i mean obviously there's risk right but yeah, yeah i think sure. i think with the way they're making money right now, I think it's kind of necessary. And I think that it could yield something, right? It would be worthwhile to see for other firms to like look at and base themselves on. Like Reddit's currently doing it right now. In that article I read, um, they're making it to where people can vote out moderators now, which is just crazy. <laughs> That's yeah. hilarious. Because yeah. moderators are annoying. I, let oh, me tell yeah. you. Yeah, they, they are annoying. They're just like thugs, dude. Like, <laughs> I don't understand it, man. Bro, they be hustling people's like, you want to you wanna post on this, Reddit? Like They do that shit for free, man. Like, come on. <laughs> oh, Jesus, bro. Don't give me a start. All right. Well, with that said, I feel like, you know, a lot of things that were discussed is um, had a lot of value in terms of kind of diving into the current political discourse and how toxic it it is and we kind of went through a, a lot of different routes and the importance of establishing values at the family the different right ways to make education a more legitimate way to kind of at the very least develop the mind and um kind of enforce critical thinking and potentially spread important ideas too and even social media there are ways to make that more efficient whether it's content moderation whether it's the different content like this podcast uh enforcing the importance of political discussion and nuanced conversation um or whether it's elon making twitter own allowing twitter to be owned by the people and making it a true public square there are ways to kind of remedy these type of uh, situations in terms of political discourse, but all these things are going to take time, of course, and all these are going to require, at the very least, being involved, having conversation, and gaining proper experience and perspective. So uh, any last words before we wrap it up? Thanks for having me on. I mean, it's an absolute pleasure to talk with you guys. 
And uh, I just want to say, Jonathan, thanks for uh, bouncing back with me, man. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I agree. I love uh, this is a great podcast. I, I think, uh, like I said last time, what, what Riddell does here is, is good having people with uh, differing opinions. I think is, uh, only good things can happen as long as we remain respectful. For sure. Exactly. We joke around, be nice, or get a little heated based on what we're talking about. But at the very least, <laughs> we can uh, respect each other on what's So, hope you guys enjoyed it. Everybody who's listening, watching, or watching it live, hope you guys all enjoyed it, of course. Uh, go to the podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and rate it five stars. And, of course, check out uh, what Jonathan going on. I know he has a podcast. I don't know if, Paul, you have anything to plug, but uh, Jonathan, make sure tell the people what your podcast is about. Yeah, the podcast is called The Classic Life. Um, and soon there will be a magazine journal uh, to go out with it. Uh, so you can find all of that on my social media platforms. All right, excellent. Paul, you got anything? Ah, uh, no. Nah. Yeah, I'm just here for the ride. Yeah, he's a private guy. Don't look him up. So with yeah. that said... <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed. Y'all have a good one. Take care. And I am glad you are here and I'm glad you are listening to today's podcast episode. My mission in each and every one of these episodes is to really focus on the solutions to some of the biggest questions and most controversial topics going on in our current society. I feel like most of these conversations are not truly being discussed in a more logical and respectful manner due to the political toxicity that goes on with both the left and the right, both the Democrats and the Republicans. In this podcast, I don't care about any of that. I am focused on the solutions. I'm focused on bridging gaps. If you want to join me on this journey, if you want to discuss some of the most important topics, if you are tired of the political toxicity and negativity from both sides, please support this channel, share the podcast, and go to my website, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. I appreciate the support. I'll continue to make content and hopefully we can start bridging these gaps and focusing on real issues going on in our world.